Wandering through the great plains of life Things move fast, sometimes a blur Don't you let this bumpy road Separate you from the herd and When you think the day is done The sun is getting low We're all looking for something rare The great white buffalo The great white buffalo Podcast with Ben Mayfield Welcome to another episode of the Great White Buffalo Podcast I'm your host Ben Mayfield Ladies and gentlemen, before we get started into today's incredible episode, I just want to remind everybody to subscribe to our YouTube page. We have 117 subscribers as as of today when I'm recording. Our goal for 2023 is to get to 1,000, so make sure you subscribe, hit the like button, the notifications. We really appreciate that. And if you're Apple and Spotify listeners, we love you and support you as well. But today... I'm so excited. This is, I, I feel like Captain Ahab right here because I've gotten the whale right here. This is, this is a big one. In all of 2023, I've had a lot of friends. I've had some new guests, but this is the first like one-on-one interview with a person who I love and admire. It's Mr. Tony Nelly. How are you, Tony? I'm well, thank you. Thank are you, you excited? Are you nervous? Is this your first podcast? First podcast. First podcast. Well, I, I was thinking about this the other day. We met on a car ride in your truck and shout out to Chris Davis. And he was telling me, Hey, you're going to ride with Tony Nunley on this youth trip. And I can't remember quite what we were doing. And I was trying to think like, okay, how do I get to connect with him? How do I get to talk to him? Cause I know he's kind of quiet. We skiing, maybe are we going skiing? It may have been the ski trip. Actually, yeah. I think that's what it was. Yeah. We're going to like West Virginia. We go to West Virginia. I believe. I'm not sure, but I think it was the ski trip, the ski trip. It was West Virginia. Yes. Yeah, to to winter place, and we we connected on baseball, and because you're a huge Braves fan, and I will say this, I've never told you this before until we started recording, I did have to embellish my knowledge of baseball. I was like, oh, like, oh yeah, what about that first baseman? And you'd be like, oh yeah, so and so, blah blah blah. I didn't know. So you lied. No, 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 no. <laughs> I I didn't say I, I knew who they were. But a little bit, yeah. I embellished a little bit, yeah. But that's how we first met, and I've gotten to know you over the years, and you're a fantastic guy. I appreciate that. I, I love it. And one of the things that I thought we could really talk about that kind of like, you know, when I interview people on the podcast, I think they have things about them that maybe they don't feel like are, you know, significant, but everybody's uniquely created on purpose. God uniquely made you to fulfill a purpose only you can fulfill. And when you think about your testimony, think about your life and what you've done, there are incredible things that people can learn from. And one of the things that I think is awesome is you were in the military, right? Correct, I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, and what made you want to join the military? Well, I'd like to tell you it was part of some very elaborate plan that I had from the beginning, but uh, really it was it was the opposite. It was the lack of no plan mm. um i came from a family mother and father were not educated in the sense of higher education my dad actually was from appalachian part of virginia so coal miner and graduated sixth grade uh, oh wow before he went into the military my mom was french and got out of high school so in their eyes for the children to graduate high school was was the goal just to get out of high school. Wow. So for me, growing up, uh, 
education was never pushed. College was never pushed. College was never talked about. It was just get out of high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's not a real high goal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But at the time, and they were, did the best they could. And so I was not motivated student. I was probably low B, high C student. Mm-hmm. Athletic, very involved in athletics, but didn't care too much about academics. Um, and so when I got later in my high school years, I knew I had to do something, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, like a lot of people. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would say probably most people. Uh, ironically, my dad uh, was in the military. He wasn't uh, infantry or anything like that. He was, a, he was a regular Army guy, which was fine. But he had an album called The Ballad of the Green Berets, which is a very old album. Yeah. Written, um, sang and produced by a guy named Barry Sadler. And I would just take that album and listen to it with my, with my headset. And I just loved it. And of course, it drama it it dramatizes the the um, what a Green Beret was. You is, know? That, is that the embodied soldiers yes. in the sky? That's it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, yeah. Garrett Trooper, all these songs. So I just fell in love with the album and the ideal of that was cool being a Green Beret. Um, so when I got to junior year high school, senior year in high school. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, the only thing that really interested me at that time was I had two interests really. I had uh, interest in biology, to, okay. to marine biology. I really loved the eco type system. I grew up on Virginia Beach, and I was fascinated by the the marshes and stuff like that. Um, but then I, I soon found out to become a marine biologist and all that. It was a lot of schooling, and I knew that wasn't really in my cards. Um, and I also worked with hearing impaired kids a lot. Oh, what made you want to work with special needs? Um, I grew up in a church where there was a large population of uh, deaf kids, oh, okay. hearing impaired, and uh, we hung out together. So when you're, you know, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, and there's another boy who's eight, nine, ten years old, and he can't hear, you just figure it out, you know. And so yeah. I picked up sign language, and as I got older. I'd spend all my summers working at camps for the hearing impaired, um, and that's what I loved. And so a lot of people thought, well, a lot of people that I went to church with thought that's what he's going to do. He's going to he's going to, you know, go to college and become a, a special ed teacher and work with deaf kids, um, which I really enjoyed. That right. was a strong passion of mine. But both of that, working with deaf children or becoming a marine biologist all involved going to college. Yeah. And parents didn't have money. I didn't have the grades. There was no hopes. I, people listening <laughs> to our younger audience, there is no hope scholarship at this point. You no, know, no, no, it's expensive. No <laughs> yeah. So uh, I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to join the Army and be a Green Beret and uh, get in four years, get college money, and then come out and go to college. That was, that was mm-hmm. my new plan. So I actually joined the Army my senior year in high school on the delayed program and then uh, went in. And what I didn't realize at the time is you can't join the Army off the street, what we call off the street, to be a, a Special Forces guy, a Green Beret. Um, but they said you can join to be a Ranger. Well, I had no idea what a Ranger was. I, had, I didn't know. You they know, don't, they I, don't have a good PR system as uh, far as music. I mean, all I knew was the Green Beret album I listened to. The guy said, the recruiter said, well, you know, Rangers, they're kind of like Special Forces guys, and you can always be a Ranger, and then once you're in, you can volunteer to be Special Forces. 
I said, oh, okay, that's cool. I'll do that. So I had a contract, joined the Army to be a ranger, uh, thinking I would volunteer at some point to go special forces, and I had no idea what a ranger was. And so that's basically how I got in the military and not knowing. You know, it's unlike today. Today there's so much information at the kids' fingertips. Mm -hmm. If you want to know something, you just Google it. Uh, back then, I couldn't Google Rangers. They weren't in the encyclopedia, <laughs> and not many people knew who they were. Well, and you're not from North Georgia, where, like, you know, a lot of our listeners may be like, well, we know Camp Frank DeMarrell. Like, we know a little bit. Of, you're in Virginia. Right. So you don't have a Ranger base right. located near you. Yeah. And so you're 18. What year did you graduate? 81. 81. Okay. So you're in the 80s. You're joining the military. You have some passions. I didn't know you worked at summer camps, too. I thought that's pretty cool because Caleb and Jamie, shout out to, they both been on the podcast. They uh, they have worked at summer camps, too, so I guess that's in the blood of, of the Nunleys. Right. Uh, I don't know if, if Robbie did at some point either. but Not that I'm aware. <laughs> um, so, so you're joining the military, and there's a lot of people that I know who, to this day, where sometimes they go to college, it doesn't quite work out. I know at least four or five people that, like, go, all right, well, maybe military is my option. And then they go to the military, and then they, a lot of them go to school later on. You know, they, they kind of get their life together a little bit. But you're joining the Army, and do you immediately go Rangers, or is it? No, it doesn't work that way. Um, you go to basic training, and upon completion of basic training, since I had a Ranger contract, I went straight to airborne school. So, you know, I graduated basic training maybe in the morning sometime. My mom and dad actually drove down for my graduation. I graduated, and then I had about four or five hours break, and then I had to sign into airborne school. So it was a really quick transition. You sign into airborne school, and then you've got, uh, I believe at the time it was three weeks was airborne school, you know. Yeah. And the the part about that. And what is airborne for those who don't know? Airborne is where the military teaches you to jump out of a plane, you know, with a static okay. line that pulls your suit, pulls your chute for you. Uh, and at the time when I was in basic training, you know, when you run or you march, you always have cadence callers, people who will call cadences and stuff to keep you in step. And they're always just songs. Well, you know, there, there are all these crazy cadences about these rangers. And I'm like, man, what? who are these guys? What did I get myself into? You know, they're singing all these cadences about... All the inform, you know, I wouldn't say it was accurate information, but you should YouTube some of the <laughs> army cadences because there's some funny ones out there. So then I get to airborne school, and it's the exact same thing. We're in airborne school, we're running, we're marching. There's singing cadences and a lot about these rangers and C 130s. I didn't know what a C 130 was, you know, it's an airplane, but I didn't know what it was at the time, yeah, you know. And so I was really ignorant to what I was getting into, I was just blindly going forward. I graduated basic. Did very well in basic, uh, went to airborne school, graduated airborne school, and from airborne school, which is at Fort Benning, both the basic and... So your first time in Georgia? Actually, I was born at Fort Benning, so I wouldn't say oh, it was my first dad's, time. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, there you go. It's my first time since birth. <laughs> well, and and being 18 years old at the time, or 19, close to the, somewhere around there, jumping out of an airplane... Was that when you went to like I want to be you know Green Beret or be a Ranger? Was that even where in your scope to jump out of a plane? Because I feel like it's horrifying. It's not like just oh yeah cool yeah let me just jump out of a plane. Well, 
You know, to be honest with you, it, it, it never bothered me. Um, I didn't think airborne school was, you know, the frightful world or whatever. It was just something to do to get to the ranger unit that mm -hmm. I had to do. Um, so, you know, graduated airborne school. And then I got sent to Savannah, which is where the first ranger battalion is. And that's where they send. There was a, there was a handful of us, I think, that went there. And you go through a program called RIP, which is uh, RIP, which is the Ranger Indoctrinational Program. So you have to graduate <laughs> RIP. If you graduate yeah. RIP uh, and you, you make it to the end, then they'll send you to an actual unit within the battalion. So I went there and... Now, now Tony, I got I to gotta interrupt you here, though. Was there a meeting at some point with some master generals of like, all right, we're going to name our program RIP? Like rest in peace. Like they're gonna regret going through no this, idea. and then like, <laughs> then they're like, all right, but we have to make it make sense though, because we can't call it like rip for that. So Rangers, you know, what's it called? A indoctrination indoctrination program. program. Someone in marketing that was pretty good. That was pretty genius. Rip, and you went through it. Yeah, everybody oh. goes through it. You have to graduate rip oh, okay. before you can get to an actual what we call a line company, which is the fighting unit. You know, in the battalion. So uh, I went through that in December. So I, you know, I was still 18 years old and got to the unit. And you know, I, rem I do remember at that point being really scared. You Ooh. know, I mean, because uh, then it was getting real, and you start hearing more stories about what these guys do and stuff. And, you know, and again, I didn't know. I was just going. And uh, so it was, it started to get a little bit more, okay, here's, I started to get a little bit more nervous. Mm -hmm. And I started saying to myself, okay, listen, you just survive three, four years or four years, and then you're out of here and you go to college. Just, just survive four years and, you know, get out of here and you go to college. I, I remember thinking that, you know. Um, so it was, it was the, it wasn't the jumping out of the plane. It was the unit because all the hype that was built up to what are these guys going to do? You know, I didn't know what these guys were, what right. they did. And so even, oh, even during yeah. rip and when you're in rip, you're not exposed to what Rangers do. They're just trying to weed out the week. Well, is, so it's all physical. Is that kind of like the Navy SEALs have like that hell week? Is it similar to that? Like, like they put you through a lot of physical, like I really, I, I can't talk about the SEAL oh. stuff cause I don't know. Oh, I thought you were to say you can't talk about the rip classified information. No, but no. is it a, is it a physical and a mental breaking? Like, where are you doing, like, we're waking up four hours of sleep, you're running 20 miles a day? Like, I don't know. Uh, it, rip back then was very physical. It wasn't, okay. it wasn't so much mind games as it was just purely physical and trying to get you ready to be part of the unit. So I not only you. they weren't – just because you – graduated basic training and just because you graduated airborne school they're like well that you know that's great but that's no big deal you know, we want to <laughs> yeah. make sure you're physically fit before we send you forward to the unit so you get three weeks to pass that mm -hmm. a lot of road marching a lot of running uh, a lot of jumping i mean we jumped uh, like 25 times in that three-week period because they want you wow. not to be they want you to have experience jumping before they get into the unit um, and then it's all about as standard operating procedures, how to, how to wear your rucksack, how to wear your gear, mm -hmm. uh, protocol, stuff like that. So it was not everybody makes it through rip, obviously. Um, and so when you do make it through, then, you know, they just attach you to one of the units and, uh, 
I got attached in December of 81 to uh, Alpha Company, 2nd Platoon, and, you know, then you then your world starts. So you're saying you graduated in May of 81 from high school. June. Or June from 81 to December. You went through basic training, airborne school. Do you do AIT or is that? Mm, that's uh, part of basic. That's well, part of basic. That's, yeah, that's the end of basic. The basic. The basic. And then, then you went through RIP. And so by December, you're <laughs> it's a very like a roller coaster of a year from end of high school, you know, four years, blah, blah, blah. And now you're like, I'm a, I'm in a ranger. Like I'm, or you're attached to ranger. You know, I don't know if you get the full, that's right. like call yourself a ranger yet, but that's right. it is a huge transition in the last half of but your year. But it actually didn't start till August because I graduated in June. And then from June all the way through August, I was working at the hearing impaired camp. Oh, okay. So I was working as a deaf counselor up until that point. And you know, you you were already physically in shape. You didn't like do any preparation of like. I did not. I didn't. <laughs> uh, I I was pretty athletic as a you know. I was not a you know professional athlete, but I was very athletic and very competitive, very busy. So I did not do anything. No. So in December, you're attached to this unit. What do you? Uh, how do you go to the next? Like, what is the the next part? Well, at that point, it's about survival. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I got there. Lowest guy on the rank pole, you know, you're the new guy. And so it's it's a whole world that's kind of hard to describe. But um, I wouldn't say uh, some people might use the word hazing. Uh, some people would use indoctrination. Some people yeah. would use a brotherhood, you know, yeah, seeing if people are ready. So at that point, I'm, you know, I'm the new guy. So they um, put me in a position. I was a machine gunner. And so they told me what I needed to do, and I just, every day, you just learn that position, and you work with the the group you're in, and then you just keep going every day, and every day you just want to survive, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, because you are looked down upon until you prove yourself, basically. Even though you've been through basic AIT and all that, no one really cares about that. Now you're here, you need to prove yourself. Because the next step is going to Ranger School, and so when you have a bunch of privates and lower enlisted guys in a battalion, you know, just because they're a ranger battalion, they only get so many slots to send people to the school. So it's an order of merit. And so in my platoon, we would get so many slots for ranger school for the year. And the platoon sergeant, the man in charge of the listed guys, would determine, okay, who's going next? Who's going next? And how long did you have to wait before you were... Well, that's that's a that's a great question because it was different. It was interesting because there were a couple of guys that had been there before me, so I was kind of like lagging behind. Not lagging, I was behind them in the order of merit or time yeah. time there in the unit. Um, but I went before them to go to Ranger School. <laughs> so I'm not really sure. I mean, my leaders just must have thought he's he's fit, he's ready, he's doing the right thing, he's going. So. I got to the unit in December, really, it was break, it was Christmas break, so we really didn't do anything until January, and I got selected to go to ranger school, and I I started ranger school uh, May of that year, wow. which is really fast. Some yeah. guys wait a year, two years before they get to go to ranger school, and the reason that's important is because once you get your ranger tab, 
now you treat it completely different. Mm. Once you go to range school and you get that tab and you come back, they're like, okay, now you're you're human. We'll we'll treat you normal. <laughs> we'll treat you normal. Uh, so I went. I actually started ranger school. I had just turned nineteen, and I graduated. That's kind of one of the youngest people. I graduated ranger school uh, in August. I was April, May, June. So I was three months, four months past eighteen. I just turned nineteen. There may be you may be the youngest ranger of all. It time. was pretty young. I, don't, I I wouldn't say I'm sure it's not the youngest of all time, but it's pretty young to go yeah. to school that 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 young. Uh, and I think it was a blessing because again, I was still ignorant to a lot of stuff. I just was like running football. You know, when you run up the middle, you just put your head down, go through, and hope <laughs> you get to the other side. You know, yeah. and, and that's what I was doing. I was just trying to survive. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna sound stupid, but I'm well, I'm ignorant to a lot of this stuff. Were you living on base? Like do they provide housing? Like are you living like in a barracks? You live in a barracks, yeah. Okay. Unless barracks. you're married, okay. then you can live off base and you can live with your wife in a house. But you know, I lived in a barracks. I lived in but where, basically it's like a Yeah, where is Fort Stewart like dorm. Fort Stewart is in South Georgia, but not near Savannah. That's not where the Ranger Battalion is. Where's is there like a base in Savannah? Yes, yeah, called Hunter Hunter Army Airfield. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. I just didn't know that was in Savannah. Yeah. Okay. So you go to Ranger School. Still, like, you probably didn't have any relatives that were, you know, Rangers that you could ask. You didn't have Google. So what was presented to you for Ranger School? Which, for those who don't listen, I and I, I maybe mis, misspeak, but Rangers is classified as Special Forces, right? Special operations. Or special operations. Okay, mm-hmm. so special operations. So it is a big deal to go to ranger school. It's not like it's just, you know, anything that you can just Well, do. before you go to ranger school, you know, before a battalion sends you to ranger school, you got to get recommended by your chain of command, you know. Okay. And then they select you, and then you go to pre-ranger. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's another four-week school. It's held in-house. It's held in Savannah. It's held at Hunter Murphy. Hunter Army Airfield, what we call an in-house school. It's not an official Army school. It's just a program taught by the battalion to make sure that people are ready and teach them what they need to know when they get to Ranger School so they're they're prepared. Because the slots are limited at Ranger School, and if right. you're going to waste one of our slots, we're not going to send you. Right, right. I got so you, you pass pre-Ranger, and then you go to Ranger School. The people that you went with that you said you got ahead of in the class, you know, I always see it like the seniors versus, you know, the freshmen. Did they go to that pre-op with you? No. Uh, so they didn't do that pre-ranger school with you? Because no. I thought maybe, it, that's what I was thinking, was maybe you just did really well at the pre-ranger school, and then it was like, oh, this guy's ready. No, the two guys that were uh, ahead of me in seniority, they, I think one of them actually went to ranger school or started ranger school while I was in ranger school. So he wasn't too far behind me. Uh, okay. And then I think the other guy, I think he actually went... Maybe when I graduated and I came back, because we were we ended up being pretty close graduates to each other, maybe within a year of each other. Okay. You know, so well, and and I don't. I'm also if I ask anything, I always feel like you know our listeners. I don't know if I'm about to get like the CIA or the NSA is listening to our conversation. I'm not trying to expose special operations, but I know there's three phases of Ranger School, which I think that's right. There's three phases currently. Yes. Currently. So wait, at was one there, point they test it four, but oh, they're back to three now. Well, when you when you started Ranger School, was there four or was there three? three there was three at the time, mm-hmm. and so what was that experience like? Like, was it the most brutal physically? Was there a mental element? Like, 
Like, what got you through? Was it just because you're 19 and kind of like, kind of dumb? Like, all right, whatever. Like, I'll just do Well, it. a lot of people, everybody has their own opinion of Ranger School, but um, Ranger School is a leadership tool. Ranger School base, basically is a leadership school. That's why the Army send people there because they want to develop leaders. They want to see how leaders react under stress. So basically, it's just a leadership school. I mean, you do oh, a lot of okay. stuff in Ranger School, like skill work wise, but it, it's it's nothing to make you better at that skill. It's just to test your leadership under stress. So this they okay. could you could go to Ranger School and the skill could be how to make ice cream, but you're going to make ice cream with no sleep, no food, outside in the rain, lightning. And all kinds of other scenarios. Now let's see how you make ice cream. No one really cares how you make ice cream, but it's how you how you do in this process yeah. while you're no sleep. Everybody else has no sleep. Your ice cream team doesn't have sleep. So how are you going to motivate them to make ice cream when they've had no sleep, they've had no food, and it's raining and all this other stuff? Golly, so it's yeah. all about. It's really not really about what you learn in in the in the skill wise of ranger school, but it's how you react to leadership skills. So what you learn mm-hmm. about yourself in ranger school is what are my weak points, what are my strong points, and how do you motivate people to do things that don't want to do it? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Did you did you discover some of those? strengths of yours and weaknesses of yours yeah absolutely um i would say i had the hardest time in ranger school with the sleep um because i wrestled all through i wrestled from like eighth eighth grade all the way through high school so um i say that because not eating i was used to i knew how to not eat and i knew how to to make weight yeah and i knew how to survive by not eating but i always got my sleep (laughs) so in ranger school not having sleep that that was my that was my Achilles heel. That's what really what I had to work on the most was how to deal with my sleep. It really wasn't the food, although you're definitely hungry. Uh, it's how do I deal with the no sleep portion? Because right. that makes you foggy with your clinical thinking. Because I imagine that stressful scenario that they're trying to get you to make leadership decisions and and how to bring people together is when there's bullets singing by your head, you know, and it's life or death situations. You gotta, you have to kind of simulate that without actually shooting at somebody, of making the right decision, making the good calls, bringing the unit together, because you're gonna have stressful military operations, and so that's why they're trying to uh, teach y'all. I'm yeah, well, they want to see uh, how far can you bend and not break, and they want to see what you do. You know, what do you do? Bend, not break. Because the, you know. Um, Ranger School is really a team effort in in a lot of sense. So everybody, every day, not everybody, but each day there's certain amount of graded quote unquote positions, and you have to pass a graded position before you can go to the next phase, and you only get about uh, three opportunities in a phase to pass your patrol, what we call patrols. So if I'm in charge. Okay, and it's near the end of the phase, and I'm still needing a, to pass. I need a go to go to Florida, but the majority of my group, they've already got their goes. They really don't care, or do they? I mean, that's what you got to figure out is, okay, I, they know they're going to Florida, so how do you get them to do what they're supposed to do, be part of the team, so you can get your go? 
you know, so it's all about the teamwork aspect of it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's when, that's why peer reporting in ranger school is so important. At the end of every phase, you get to peer evaluate. So if there's somebody in the group that's not a team player, you can rate them low. And even though they've got to go, if their peer reporting is low enough, they will put them back. They'll recycle them. Wow. Do they talk to them why they send them back, though? Oh, yeah. You you get told. You You got peer reviewed, you know, so. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I'm just trying to think, like, in those situations, is there a part where I, because I know, like, from things I've seen online with the Navy SEALs, the Green Beret, or uh, trying to think of some other special operations-type units, but through all this, you know, they've preached that stressful, you know, situation. But is there a part where they do, like, a skills teaching where it's not, like, wake up at the crack of dawn, No, you have two hours of sleep, or they did, is there a point where they go, all right, let's teach you some stuff? Like, is there a learning aspect of, like, how to do drops or do tactics or, you know, if we're trying to take over a compound or drop into a hot zone, how do we do that? Like, is there a learning phase? So you, I think you're asking me two questions. Okay. Do, are they, do they teach you how to combat the lack of sleep and the food and the stress yes no oh okay i don't think i've ever had a class on how to combat stress and you just do it okay you either do it or you don't do they teach you the the other part of yeah, it now the other part of that okay. you're talking about tactics yeah absolutely okay um i mean but again ranger school is not about how well you do your tactics okay it's not it, okay I mean, that's what I was... you are being graded on your particular mission, but it's more about how you led. It's not oh, really whether okay. the mission was a success, but how did you how did you put together the plan? How did you incorporate your leaders? How did you motivate them to pull security even though they just want to sleep? Uh, so it's it's more about leadership than it is about accomplishing the mission. Wow. I mean, because if you look at a a raid, a ambush which is a typical mission for ranger school students to do. Right. They, they do not look good. They do not look good. But there's you can't look at that. You got to look at what the evaluators are looking at. You know, because they know that guy he hadn't had but one meal a day for the last 10 days and he hasn't slept much and you know they've been rained on and they've been wet and they've been cold and they've been all of this but yet he's trying to figure this out how to make this mission work mm-hmm. and accomplish it with his team. So that's what it's about. Wow, okay. Now, when you get out of ranger school and you go back to your ranger unit, that's where they're going to teach you tactics and okay. other stuff like Things that. Things like that. Yeah. Was there, I think this is, well, you know, I'm listening to this, and, and I know people who are listening, or at least I am, I'm fascinated by this stuff. I could probably spend four hours asking you a thousand questions. But one of the, I think the key ingredient that we can all take away is there was probably a moment, if not multiple moments, where you're like, I can just quit this crap right now. I want my sleep, you know, or some people's like, I want my food, or uh, I'm wet. I don't like wet socks, and my feet are wet, and they're probably nasty looking, and I don't know these guys. This is a stressful situation. Why am I doing this? What was the... What was the heart or the mindset? Like, what said, you know what? I'm going to dig deeper than I've ever dug before and move forward. Was it faith? Was it just... I think it was probably fear. <laughs> fear? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fear of going back to my unit 
not having graduated ranger school, I did not want to do that. Uh, that's Ooh. that's not looked upon highly, you know. So I think it was the fear of not making it, you know. And um, at that point, again, you know, I'm 19. Right. So that's true. I uh, really can't say I never quit anything because I didn't really do anything other than sports. So, you know, this was a pretty good test of of me, but it was more about. You know, you just—it's graduating was a big was a big mark, and so mm-hmm. I just knew I needed that mark to go to the next step. I needed I needed to graduate. That was my next. I needed to get over this hurdle, and so whatever it takes, I need to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the fear of going back was not an option. Well, and I think that's a, a very valid answer because you know sometimes we associate fear with you know they're scared or fear of failure or whatever it may be. But like fear, in a, in a way, is healthy because I think even like when I was getting my doctorate, which I'm not comparing to Ranger School at all, but just in the sense of there was moments where I'm like, why am I doing this? Like I don't want to write a hundred and fifty page paper. Like this is so stupid. But then I started thinking like, well, then I have to tell people that I quit and that you know that all these people who are looking up to me to graduate and and supported me and then I'm like, okay, well actually uh, I gave up. I didn't really want to do it anymore. And that fear of like kind of letting them down was like, well, you're not going to do that then. You're actually going to dig deep and move forward so you don't have to even cross that bridge. And so I think there is a, I think fear can be healthy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So fear, fear is very healthy. Um, going back to the, I don't want to digress from what you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. But going back to the airborne thing, you know, jumping out of planes, um, you, you have to fear jumping out of planes to an extent, but you can't let the fear control you. Um, because I think if you lose fear, you lose the respect for what you're doing. And I always told myself, uh, if ever I got in an airplane and I wasn't a little nervous about jumping and I wasn't a little fearful, um, I, not that it's going to just overtake my emotion, but I, if I didn't have that little bit of fear in me, then I needed to stop jumping. Because at that wow. point, you lose respect for what you're about to do, and you're either going to kill yourself or you're going to kill somebody else. So you have to respect it but and be fearful of it, but don't let it control you. Wow. That's, that's some wise words, Tina. So that's, that's why, yeah. you know, in, in ranger school is the same way. You know, you're, the fear may have controlled me at that point because I did not want to go back without the tab. You know, there mm-hmm. was, that was not an option. In my mind, there was no other option. Because in the Ranger world, if you, um, if had I gone back without the tab, it's a possibility that they would have sent me one more time. But I would have been really low on the rank. I mean, right. there have been tons of people go before me before I would get a second chance. So that meant life would be really hard for a few more years until I got a chance to go back. Or they can just kick you out of the unit. You know, a ranger unit's a volunteer unit. So unlike the, the regular army, if, you know, if, if you're assigned a soldier, you really can't kick that soldier out unless you have a lot of grounds, counseling, they did this, they did this, they did this, and then you can kick them out. But in the ranger unit, it's a little different. If they don't make the standard, then you just you move uh-huh. on down the road and you go to a regular army unit. So I didn't want to do that. So that fear, again, is, you know, Coming back without the tab was not an option. So whatever it took was it was going to take it. Either I was going to take accomplished. it. And one of the things that I I went to uh, back this 
this fall, I went to a, call it a walk to Emmaus, and they take away, you don't have a cell phone, and you can't wear a watch, because I always wear a watch with, you know, the time and the date and all that. At Ranger School, do you have a perception of time? You do have a perception of time, because everything is time-driven. Okay, so you know, like, today's a Tuesday. You don't know about a day. You're, okay. You're really not conscious of a day so much. Because no one really cares what day it is. A day is a day. But like but zero five hundred. Like, everything you do is time driven. So okay. you know you might get put in charge, and you might have a mission to accomplish at seventeen hundred five o'clock p.m. or twenty hundred eight o'clock at night. And so then you have to back plan. What do you have to do in time increments to make that happen? So yeah, everybody has a watch, and everything is time driven. Okay, okay, so okay, I, I didn't know if there was one a watch in range school is actually very important because everything is done by time. <laughs> okay, you know, even All right, when, scratch what I said, you do need to watch a ranger school. Got it. Uh, I mean, even when you're pulling, uh, if in the rare opportunities when you get to sleep, you know you might get to sleep five minutes, and your buddy gets to sleep five minutes, but while he's sleeping, you got to be awake, so you know you're watching your watch because you don't want to shortchange him five minutes and you want to get your five minutes so every little bit counts so watch is pretty important okay so you do have a watch and did you know as a kind of an off the wall question but did you know like hey tomorrow's the last day of ranger school like did you know that day was coming up or is it kind of like when they like all right hey, uh y'all passed you're done you're like, no well no we we knew uh everybody pretty much knew when the last day was okay and when the last patrol was and that was kind of a somber day because the guys that had not passed their patrols knew they were not going to have any more oh, opportunities man. to go, you know. Um, so you knew what the, the last day was for How many sure. patrols do you have to pass? You have to pass. It, it's changed over the years. When I went through, um, you had to pass 50% to move forward. And you, so guess. if you got four patrols, you had to pass two. You know. Oh, okay. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Because that could be super, like, you just went through all this, and, like, let's say you had four patrols, and you, you passed one, and you didn't pass. I guess you would fail three, which is kind of, I guess, is a right on the wall um, that you're not going to pass it. But and like, and what's, what's hard about it is, you know, when I went through, again, this, it, times have changed. Things are different. So we had a 10-day... Uh, period where you're in the woods for 10 days uh-huh. and you get patrols every day for 10 days and that was really 10 days is a long time to be out there with no sleep and lack of food and you know wears on you so unfortunately the guys who were struggling to pass their patrols you know like if a guy was say there was a guy 3-0 and on patrols or 4-0 and on patrols and it's day 8 of a 10 day field training exercise you're not going to give him a patrol because he's going forward regardless. So you're going to give the patrols to the people who have not passed. But you're giving them, you're you're feeding them these graded positions at the very end of a 10-day exercise when there's absolutely no energy, no motivation, (laughs) and everybody's (laughs) done. So it makes it even harder for the graded person to pass in a sense. Wow. Because he's just really fighting an uphill battle. So after this, I guess you got your patrols. You're like, okay, I passed my patrols. What happens when you graduate? Did your parents come? Is it a graduation ceremony? No. or is uh, it? I'm really not sure what, what happened at that point. It, I don't have a memory. You don't remember something 40 years ago? I remember 
Do I? <laughs> so you don't remember something that happened 40 years ago? Come on now. <laughs> so I remember going from the first phase, which is Fort Benning. Okay. I remember that phase, and then going to the mountains, and I remember the mountain phase. And that's still that's Delonica? Still Delonica. Oh, and then nice. when you graduate the mountain phase, we, we jumped into Florida, and we did the oh, swamp we oh, did yeah. the swamp phase. Oh, okay. I didn't so know that's that. the last phase. And then uh, when you graduate, or not when you graduate, but when you complete the swamp phase or the Florida phase, you go back to Fort Benning, basically get cleaned up, and you graduate. So which phase... I know phase three, the swamp is the last one, so you could argue on the sleepiest, tiredest, hungriest by that phase. But is the mountain phase harder than the swamp phase? Like, well, it's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, everybody has everybody will probably answer that differently depending okay. upon their person. Um, for me, a lot a lot of people do not like the mountain phase because of the terrain. It's so hard to walk up the mountains with all the gear. Oh, that's true. That, and that, heavy. that just really kicks your butt. Uh, and it's it's colder. Now I went in the summer, uh, but the, it's all the walking that really hurts people. Uh, so for me, though, I I would not say I enjoyed the mountains, but I would say the mountain phase for me, uh, I liked better than the Florida phase because in the Florida phase, you're in the swamps. And your your feet are just wet all the time. Wet feet, Tony. I cannot do that. That bothered me more than uh, being in the mountains. And so, to me, I had a harder time with the Florida phase. You get blisters and like your feet just peel off skin. Yeah, you definitely, and it stinks pretty good too. Yeah. And you get to the point where you just it's hard to walk because your feet are just so stiff. You know. You ever shoot an alligator? Never shot an alligator. <laughs> uh, not a real ranger. Come on now. If you're not if you're not hunting down alligators in the swamp, is it like is it the uh, what's the big? Is it not Everglades? What's the thing that's in um, Florida? The one. The, oh, is it Everglades? Is that what it is? And you have the Okie Finokie in Georgia. No Okie Finokie. Did y'all do any Okie Finokie? No, no, we stayed it? in the Florida, which is we stayed in the Panhandle, Florida, which is near uh, Destin, Fort Walton Beach. That's okay. the, That's the Florida phase. That's the Florida phase. Mm-hmm. So you go. Um, through the swamp, Ugh. but that kind of makes me want to ask the question, and maybe I'm I'm very ignorant. I feel I'll describe this and tell me if I'm wrong, okay? Because we're listening to this experience, we're listening to Ranger School, the the stress of the leadership, and, and you learn tactics later on. But this is the very stressful part. What do Rangers do? Like, what is their purpose? And this, I'm going to describe this, and I could be completely wrong. So, for all of our Rangers listening, you can uh, just roll your eyes at me. But from what I understand, and maybe this is, I stole this from you many years ago when we talked, is the Rangers' purpose, like why they are special operations, is they are the secure, uh, they secure a landing zone for everybody else. That they're the first in, they lead the way, which I think is their motto, maybe not. Uh, they come in, they go, all right, we'll drop in, hot zone, we'll take over this landing zone, and that way everybody else who's not as awesome as we are as rangers can then come in and then with a bigger military. I don't know if that's accurate, but what do rangers do? Well, it's evolved, it's changed. Okay. Um, when I first got there, um, I got there, and again, like I said, in 81, and you understand the Rangers didn't stand up until 74. 
So from seventy four, what do you mean they didn't stand up? There was no Ranger unit again till seventy nineteen seventy four. Oh, that's when it first started. So okay. it started up in nineteen seventy four um, from World War Two. So those first few years, there's everybody's trying to figure out what we do, what we're going to do, how are things looking. So I was I was there at a pretty early less time, than ten years, yeah, at, at a pretty early time in the Ranger history of what we're doing. And when I went there. It, we were basically the supreme light infantry of the world. You know, we were going to be better at light infantry tactics. That was our goal than anybody in the world. You know, so shoot, move, communicate, jump out of planes, do raids, do ambushes, uh, all that stuff. That's what we were going to do, and we were going to do it better than anybody. Okay. Uh, so that was our focus. Uh, then the what you mentioned, the airfield seizure came around as an introduction to the Rangers doing that. Airfield seizure. Right. Okay. And so that evolved uh, to be more of a primary mission. Um, Let's go. I got one. And so now, I, you know, I'm, I really don't want to go out and say what they're doing now. Okay. Be, okay. But I would say they're still doing very important stuff. I'm sure they're still doing stuff that involve airfields, uh, and working with other special operation units, but mm-hmm. everybody has kind of expanded their mission a little bit. You know, little everybody's bit. kind of doing more than one thing. Do um, and say, and I totally get that. You can't go too far into it. Do the Rangers? Uh, how is inner cooperation amongst special operations? Like, do do like Rangers work with Green Beret? Who work like? Do they work with? SEALs? Do they work with... I'm trying to think of... Or do y'all just work with like the, the regular army? Well, like any... I think like any competitive sport, there is a competition oh, in, the, okay. in the special operations community between different units. You know, whether it be the SEALs and the special forces guys and the Rangers and then, you know, you got... Air Force, an Air Force unit there. You got different units that uh-huh. are considered special operations. So there is a lot of uh, competition, you know, and trash talk, if you will, between those units. Let's go. But everybody understands that's just internally. You know? Yeah. Everybody has the same mission, and no one's trash talking another special operations unit to another country. You know, they would ne- we would never do that. You know, we're just amongst ourselves. Basically. Right. A healthy competition. A, health, a healthy competition. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah. Because ultimately, we're Americans. We're U.S. Team America. Like, That's right. Absolutely. Now, with that, with the Rangers, so would you consider yourself a Ranger in 81 or when you got your Ranger tab in 82? Uh, that's that's another good question. Um, you know, I I consider myself... I don't know at what point. I think personally, I consider myself a ranger. Ranger when I got to the unit. Okay. That's well, and you pass. So I think that if you hadn't passed ranger school, okay, you know maybe. But since you passed, it kind of goes. Well, yeah, I started yeah. at eighty one. You know. Yeah. To I, that. I think at that point, I probably considered myself a ranger. You I got know? you. Uh, and then definitely more so when I graduated ranger school. I got you. Um, and and other people who are not rangers can go to ranger school to Absolutely. get the ranger tab. That's correct. But they are not like and this. I know this is slightly confusing, but I'm a military kid, so I feel like I got a little better understanding. In case you didn't know, my dad also served. What's up, dad? Uh, 
but you can go to schools to get a tab, but there's also a battalion that you're a part of. So, like, you're part of the Ranger Battalion and got your Ranger tab, went to Ranger School, but you could have a guy, I don't know, in the Marines or something, go to Ranger School, get permission to go to Ranger School, get Ranger certified, get a tab, but they are not part of the Ranger unit. That's correct. That is correct statement? Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, Ranger School, again, it goes back to what I was talking about, Ranger School being a leadership school. So it's not just for the Ranger units. It's for the Army to send their people to to become better leaders. So any any uh, combat arms, was what we would call it, job skill in the military, can get a slot, most of the time can get a slot to send somebody to Ranger School uh, to, to, to pick up this leadership skill. Right. And when they graduate, they get to wear the black and gold tab on their uniform that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go to a ranger unit. They go back to their unit and they're ranger qualified, you know. Right. Um, Which is impressive. Yeah, and that's what the that's what the purpose of the school is is to raise the standard of leaders in the army. You know, if you send a handful of people from your unit to ranger school and they come back, the goal would be that they would help raise the standard of your unit and increase the leadership of your unit. Can they call themselves a ranger? Um, I'm I'm not gray. gonna say <laughs> gray area, what, uh, <laughs> you know that that terminology. We have our own little thing in house, but you know, I got you. I would say they probably do. Okay. Uh, now, I did not realize they started the Ranger uh, unit in '74. You're there in '81. It's only six years, seven years later, so less than ten years total. And how long were you in the Ranger? Like you started in eighty one. When did you become a non Ranger, or when did you be, not become part of the Ranger Battalion? Uh, when did I leave the Ranger Battalion? Mm-hmm. After the Panama invasion, so that was Ooh. ninety. Okay, well we just we went through a lot. Okay, before we get there, because I want to <laughs> I, I want to get into that is your Green Beret dreams after Ranger School. Did you try to pursue the Green Beret thing, or is that kind of like, ah, eh, I've already You're done? Pretty Ranger. good at this podcast stuff. You remember things? Oh, I do, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, well, I got to the point after I was in four years, um, I was up for reenlistment, and at the four year mark was is pretty. It was pretty important because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I know I loved doing what I was doing, which was being a ranger. Um, but, and at that point, eight, eight, four years, Grenada had already happened. So I was past the Grenada invasion. You know, okay. I'd already participated in Grenada. Wait, wait, you took part in Grenada? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, first of all, Tina, you can't just pass through huge military operations like that. So what year was Grenada? 82? 83? Yeah, October of 83. And what, I was not born, so what was Grenada about? Do you know? Well, let me go back to what I was saying. Okay, okay, okay. You, you asked a question about my special operator, or my Green Beret dreams. Yeah. I very much slowly fell in love with being a ranger. Mm. And the ideal of going to Green Berets or being a Green Beret was slowly fading in my head. Now, there were a lot of guys in the units who would transfer over and, and become a special forces guy because there was a lot they did that was attractive. You know, one they get to grow their hair out, and you know they, <laughs> they 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 were a little bit I would say casual, more casual than we were. So that was pretty mm-hmm. attractive. But I really loved what I was doing. And at the four year mark, I said, "All right, I got to reenlist. 
if I don't re-enlist, then I got to go back home. Well, I really didn't have anything to go home to, so I thought about it for a while thinking, I mean, I did have my mom and dad there. I don't want to say that. I want to say I'd have to go to school. Right. You know, I didn't have... I didn't have a place to go and live. I'd I'd have to enter college at 22, having been independent now for four years on my own, completely independent. And I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it. I enjoyed my independence and I was like, nope, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And so it was up and I actually didn't reenlist until maybe two or three days before I was supposed to get out. And that's when I made the decision, no, I'm going to reenlist and stay. For is it another four years? Is it four? Well, years at that point, time? I knew I was probably going to make it a career. I knew if I went past the four year mark, I said, "Okay, well, if I'm going to go past four years, and I'm just going to stay in for twenty and figure this out." Oh, uh, do you do you sign for twenty? years? No, but you just kind of make a decision. You can make a decision at any point. I'm going to do another four years and another four years. Another four. Or so oh, forth. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that point, so that's a big was, moment then. Well, I'm, I was twenty two, so. Another four years puts me at 26. So do you get out at 26 and then start a new life? I mean, that's that's kind of tough. So 22 was a critical decision-making point for me to get out or not get out, and I decided to stay. That I mean, you're, you're absolutely right because 22 is young enough where you're like, all right, I can go maybe by by 26, I have a degree. I can go be a teacher or I can go do this or do that. So that is a critical moment where you're like, all right, well, what is my career path going to be? And, you know, honestly, I've fallen in love with the Ranger School, the Ranger Battalion, and 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 serving, you know, in this role. So I'm going to stay here for four more years. So that is a really important keynote part of, yeah. of Tony Nunley's story. Um, and so in 85, you sign on. And at that point, 85, you oh, sign yeah, on yeah. for yeah. like four more years, yes, right? Yes. Um, and then you decide that Green Bray is not quite your thing anymore because uh, you kind of got into it. And you get to wear, do you wear, uh, was it the beige berets? Don't Rangers wear like berets no, too? black. Oh, yeah, black? Oh, okay, okay. Which, you know, black is cooler than, you know, green. Like, ugh. Anyways, I'm trying to start trash for all my Green Beret friends. I don't have any, I don't think. Uh, is Green Beret, is that Army as well? Yes. Delta Force Army? Yes. Is Delta Force a thing at this point? Yes. Okay. I don't know. Delta Force is to me is even like super secretive. Uh, we won't get into it. Um, so, but back to Grenada though. All right, because that is a conflict, a military conflict. It wasn't like a we didn't go to war. Is that the one where they like kidnapped people in a school? Well, um, Grenada is, as you know, a small island, mm-hmm. and in the Caribbean, and there was a coup that took place where the military took over the government, killed the leader. Oh, wow. Um, there were also rumors that the Grenadians were being backed by the Cubans and that they were they had this big, big airfield. Oh, this is Cold War era, isn't it? Yeah, and they were going to, the Cubans were going to influence the Grenadians to take this airfield, turn it over to them, so... If the Cubans did that, then that meant Russia would have a place to land planes. So uh, from what I understand, President Reagan at the time was concerned with the military coup taking place. There were American students on the island in a medical school called True Blue Medical, True Blue Medical Campus, I believe. 
and they were going to school, medical school down there. And he feared for their lives, and he also did not like the idea of the Cubans backing the Grenadians and the possibility of taking the airfield and using it for other reasons. So then he alerted the government, he alerted the Pentagon to come up with something to get the students, basically get the American students out of there safely. You know, that's the primary mission. The secondary is preventing Cuba and Soviet Russia having a yeah, the, airfield. The, the country was in complete disarray. I mean, the military was taken over, and they, and they killed, they assassinated the, the leader. So that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge deal. And so, and at that point in 83, I'm assuming this is the first Ranger military operation, right? I mean, because at that point, y'all were pretty young, y'all. Was just... uh, it was the second. Okay. Uh, there was another one called Operation, uh, I believe it's called Eagle Claw, which was awesome name. when the Iranian hostages were held and the government was going to try to rescue the Iranian hostages. Yeah, in 77? 79. Or 79, is that what Jimmy yeah, Carter? That's right. Yeah, okay, well, I didn't know the that, Rangers were involved with that. We were, we had a company involved and that didn't go well. It never really, they never really executed the operation because of, uh, or for for several reasons, but the biggest reasons was a helicopter uh, got damaged and couldn't land and take off, and then it was a crash. So they they withdrew and they never did complete that operation. So that would really be technically the first time Rangers were into action, even though they didn't actually go all the way through. Go all the way through. Yeah. So and, and so Grenada would be the second. And so this was the first, or I say the first, the second time, but really the the first, I guess, successful. And why were the Rangers chosen? I guess because of the airfield? Yeah, at that, time, at that time, there were two Ranger units. There was one in Savannah, and there was one in Washington State, which is the second Ranger battalion. And so okay. they're complete opposite ends of yeah, the country. Yeah, East Coast, West Coast, and yeah. the airfield needed to be taken over so that we could land airplanes to rescue the students and bring peace or control to the country. Um, so that was in our wheelhouse, airfield, taking over the airfield. Yeah. So that's, that's why we got the call. Uh, and, and if I ask a question, obviously you don't, right, you don't have to answer it. But so were you part of it? Like were you... Like one of the ones that deployed from Savannah to go take over the airfield. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Did y'all get some light fire? We did, yeah. And it's the first time that uh, I don't want to even say the date because I would be inaccurate, but it's the first time. This is what I was told that anyone has jumped out of a plane at 500 feet while being shot at since maybe I don't think it was done during Vietnam I do not I mean I mean I could be corrected on that I do not believe it happened in Vietnam I do not believe it happened in uh well I think the first I think or Korea I think maybe Korea was a possibility or yeah. something but it was a long time anyways that's the point it was right. a very very long time since American soldiers have jumped out of a plane at 500 feet which is that's the combat level. We never jump out of planes at 500 feet. Uh, the lowest we did ever jump in training is 1250. Um, because oh. you, that gives you room to react in case your main doesn't open. It gives you room to react to pull your reserve and take the procedures, you know. To but, fix it, it. but 
fix it. Yeah, but so I'm I'm using my hands for all you watch on YouTube because this is how I'm going to describe this. Is you're in there, and I guess since you're lower to the ground, it's harder for them to shoot at you. Where if you're up here, they can shoot just up and have I guess greater time to shoot troopers. So lower to the ground gives you less time in the air, closer to the ground to, to combat. Yeah, is that it, right? It absolutely gives you less time in the air. And, you know, you might think it's easy to hit a body under a parachute while they're moving through the sky, but it's really not that easy. Yeah, I I mean, that's pretty hard to do. Um, The other part of flying low was the the airfield had anti-aircraft guns, and the anti-aircraft guns were on a big hill overlooking the airfield. And the... The plan was to get the planes low enough that they could not lower the guns that low to f- shoot to the airplanes. Oh, so wow. that was another reason why it was to jump low. To jump low, yeah. When people try to talk about shooting, I always go, "Well, when you get a basketball and you shoot a three, do you make it?" I'm like, well, no. It's like, well, do you think you could shoot a gun five hundred yards away and hit it? Like, no, you probably can't. Uh, if you can't shoot a basketball, you probably can't shoot a gun. At least accurately, because some people have like this misperception because of movies that like you shoot a target, it just automatically just hits it, and it's not super. It's still scary to be shot at. Don't get me wrong, but it's a little harder than you think. And that's that's the the jump into Grenada. There's a whole lot that went on before the jump that you could spend hours on the the, the confusion, the chaos. Because this was the first time the military had an operation with joint services, and it did not go well. The Army not communicating to the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, the SEALs. There were a lot of people involved, but at this point, we really didn't have a common headquarters to control us. So it was really, really difficult to get things done and to communicate, and that was a lesson learned from Grenada. Um, So on on the way down in the flight, going down there, we were told, uh, okay, we're not going to jump. You're going to air land. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, you might get the word, okay, we, we, you're going to jump. And then it you know, goes back and forth because the, te- the information just kept changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very, very confusing. Um, but we ended up, the formation of the airplanes going in changed drastically because you load an airplane f- based upon where you want people to be on the ground when they jump. So... Right. There's certain people at certain parts of the airfield, so you front load the airplane with X amount of people to, to, that do a certain job, and then after them is going to jump be somebody else. So each airplane is loaded like that, so when they get on the airfield, they're close to who they need to be. But in this situation, that could, totally didn't happen. <laughs> the first three aircrafts just turned around because they were receiving too much gunfire, and so the third aircraft ended up becoming the first aircraft... <laughs> which was my aircraft, to jump, and then... Oh, so you're the first ones to actually hit the ground. I believe I believe our aircraft was the first one to jump. Three, four, aircrafts three, four, five, and six all came. Which goes back to Ranger School, which says, hey, when everything messes up and it's super stressful, are you going to have that leadership skill to continue the mission. There you I mean, go. is it not right? I mean, because that's, that's a nice tie in. Because yeah. if you were to land there and go, well, the th- first three planes didn't land, so we're going back up. It's like, yeah. well, no, <laughs> you don't get to choose that. Well, and up to this point, you know, we're okay, so 83, I'm what, 20? 
18, 19, 20. I'm 20. Um, and none, none of us have been shot at before. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so we don't know what it's like. We're, we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. You know, mm-hmm. our, the information we've gotten at that point has been pretty sparse. So, and we've gone on a lot of, you know, quote unquote missions and they're not real. They're just training, but they try to hype you up for them. So we, we, some of us maybe in the back of our mind, we're thinking, yeah, this is a big drill. We're really not going, we're going to jump out and we're going to be at Fort Stewart probably someplace, you know, uh, that was not the case. I mean, when the, when we jumped out, you could, you could see the green tracers, Americans fire with red tracers and the, the Soviet Union countries they fire with green tracers so you could see the green tracers coming at you and that's the first oh yeah this is real you know i'll say one bad word that's an oh shit moment yeah Yeah. that's when you realize okay this is happening (laughs) yeah you know and then um for me personally i get on the ground and first of all luckily to get on the ground alive and not be hurt and have all my stuff yeah um but then I look around and we're not seeing anybody because the other airplanes didn't jump, you know. And so you're you kind of, I was very nervous, linked up with a, a buddy of mine who was a higher position than me. And uh, we were like, where's everybody else? I don't know. And then all of a sudden we looked and you could look down the airfield and then you could see the planes had turned and they were coming back. So we knew they were coming back. <laughs> uh, just making another round. Making it. another loop, yeah. And they came back and that's when the majority of everybody else jumped. Um, which did, was a good thing. Did y'all have to secure it enough for them? Like there was no securing. We didn't. We weren't big enough at that first pass. There was oh, not okay. enough just, people to secure. Just, it was more about uh, we were on one side of the airfield. The bad guys were on the other side of the airfield, kind of on a hill, firing at us. And then as soon as they saw the planes coming back in, they started firing at the planes. So we felt like if we fired at them they wouldn't be able to fire the planes as much. So we just tried to cover the jumpers coming in by firing at the other side just to keep wow. the fire down. And then wow. once the majority of the guys jumped, then we started going into our plan to take over the airfield. Yeah. That's a, uh, well, th- I mean, thank you for sharing it. I know this is probably bringing up some, some memories and some some emotions. I uh, I just hope my memories are accurate. You know, I don't like. <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate them. I like to talk about what I know and what I've yeah. seen. You weren't like you definitely weren't like in Disneyland in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> you were definitely in Grenada. Uh, and so after everybody lands, and I'm and I'm assuming combat, uh, you know, happened in America. Did y'all have? So you didn't have any like. Tanks. I no mean, tank. Rangers so, don't. Yeah, your light, your light armored mm, infantry. Light, no armor. Oh, just light infantry. Light. Okay, so but y'all are able to, I guess, maneuver, flank them. You know, take it out. Well, uh, it it it's a whole it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I mean, the step one was to take over the airfield because if we can take over the airfield, then we can land more planes with more people. Right. So that was our first step: is to take over the airfield. So everybody. We had a mission to take over the airfield. Everybody had something to do. Um, one of the ironic things about it is we knew they had put heavy equipment all over the airfield because they did not want planes to land. They knew we were coming. So they put bulldozers and all kinds of heavy equipment on the runway wow. so we couldn't land the planes. So rangers don't know how to operate heavy equipment, per se. So... 
we took two guys from Fort Bragg that were heavy equipment operators, and we requested, and they came with our unit, and their sole mission in life was to move heavy equipment. Oh, that's, that's um, kind of cool. Because they're heavy equipment operators. But ironically, if that's the right word, when we got on the airfield, of course, they're not in the right spots. We No one knows where they are. We're on the nor- I'm on the north end of the airfield with my platoon, my group, and there's heavy equipment on the airfield, and uh, we start receiving a lot of fire from the other side. Uh, but you know, we had a guy in my platoon from South Georgia who grew up on a farm, and <laughs> he just jumped on the bulldozer, cranked it up, raised the blade, and we started we started going. So it was kind of funny that uh, yeah. we had we Let's had go. somebody that knew how to drive a bulldozer. Yeah, no, it's like. Hey man, uh, this is the same one that's on my farm. I, I got it. <laughs> it's like okay, like, yeah. and you could use that to get hide behind too, because you probably didn't have a whole lot of we cover. We did, we did use it to hide behind because we were receiving fire from. Prior to this point, there were um, a couple of trucks on my end of the airfield uh, that had brought on. They were they just drove onto the airfield with troops and they offloaded the troops and they they vacated the. The truck on the yeah. airfield and the troops went up in the woods or up in the not really woods but they went up in the hills caribbean so it's not like woods but yeah. they went up to the hills and so but we, left the truck there we yeah. crossed the airfield and basically took the trucks um and used the trucks as cover and that to my knowledge that would have been the first ranger killed happened at, at that truck location i'm pretty sure that's accurate uh, oh, in the whole history of the Rangers, on that operation. On the, oh, on that operation. I think okay. he was the first one. He was. It was my roommate. His name was Mark Yamani. He was a machine gunner, and he was shooting up the hill. He was co- behind cover. He was behind the, the the vehicle's tire, but a bullet had come in underneath the vehicle and ricocheted, and oh, uh, and took him out. And I think when when Mark lost his life right there. I think to a lot of us, we our nerves went from nerves to angry at that wow. point. Yeah. Now it became personal. You know, at this yeah. up until this point, it was kind of everybody's really edgy, everybody's really nervous. We're all doing our thing, but we're still kind of nervous. But everybody that was around that situation when when Mark was killed, and then that word spread, you know, that he was. I think it became more personal. You know, and people became angry at that point. And after that happened is when the uh, bulldozer incident happened and got behind the bulldozer and kind of went up the hill to, to fight. To, um, yeah. And used the bulldozer as cover. Yeah. Um, and I, of, I distinctly yeah. remember at that point uh, being angry, not only being angry, but just being... Um, I don't know, sort of revengeful is the word, but uh, wanting to get back, yeah. you know. So you you start to take more risk. Up until that point, you really weren't taking a lot of risk. You wouldn't move too far without getting down, and you would you really be cautious of what you were doing. But as soon as that happened, it was just like, okay, we're oh, oh we're coming for we're, you. We're, yeah, we're everybody's turned loose now. Yeah. And it became a different ball game at that point. It's almost like they made a mistake. <laughs> like, you shouldn't have done that, you know? Um, and then, because if I don't, I could be wrong, but Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood, I don't know if you ever seen that movie, but they're Marines, and I think they do a little, 
seen it in the movie, and I don't think it's it's either Grenada or something like that. It is. It's Grenada, and they do a, like a bulldozer they scene. Do. So I wonder if it was inspired it was, by this. It absolutely was. Was it really? Do you yeah. know what movie I'm talking about? Yeah, they. Yeah. I what I remember about that movie is uh, they wanted the Rangers to be part of that movie after they came up with the script, and the army said no. They weren't going to. They didn't want that advertisement. They didn't want that publicity for the Rangers to be in the movie. Uh-huh. Producers thought it was a great idea, so they just made the same movie, but they made it with the Marines. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a. It, I have never seen the movie, uh-huh. uh, but I do know there's a bulldozer scene in there, so it, it's too what, coincidental. One hundred percent. Because when you're saying that, I'm like, wow, that's. Just like the movie. And I'm like, wait a minute, there were Marines. Oh, man. And I'm not sure how it yeah. happened in the Marine. I'm not sure how it happened in Heartbreak Ridge. I mean, I yeah. love Clint Eastwood, but I didn't watch that movie. Yeah. Um, so, but that did happen in real life. And then, you know, and I, I'm not trying to to rush or anything, but I'm assuming you secured the airfield at some point. You went, you got that, and then more troops landed? Well, not yet. Uh, we were still basically pushing out the perimeter uh-huh. and my platoon was working on the perimeter um, pushing out to make a buffer between the actual airfield and, and the bad guys so, you know we're trying to push everybody out fight everybody away and we got called to go to the campus to get the students oh um, so you were the you <clears> rescued so we got oh my gosh we got, yeah we, we got pulled back and then uh, our mission was to enter into the campus and start getting the students out of their dorms so we could pull them off the airfield. Um, did y'all have a roster of no, people? Absolutely Just, not. No. Did y'all have any CIA like 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 uh, what were they boots on the ground or something that told no. you? Oh wow, that's the eighties for you. Uh, and so so you went from seizing the airfield, securing that, to also being the rescue team. Yeah, the the operation of securing the airfield was still taking place we just got pulled back oh. to go to the campus and so you were probably the ones that got pulled back and so when you went to the campus was there uh opposition there as well no um that the campus was locked down we didn't know that though we didn't know there wasn't going to be any opposition we were prepared for opposition so we went in very slowly um, but we did not receive any fire as we went from dorm room to dorm room or navigating our way through the campus. Getting we the we all like, we're army, we're good guys. Like, well, we did, but we did it very cautiously, you know, because okay. we didn't know who was in the rooms. We uh, just didn't know anything, yeah. you know. And sometimes a student would come running out their dorms with their hands just waving and screaming, and you're like, it's a good way to get shot. Just be yeah. still, hold up, you know. Calm but down. they were just, they were nervous. Right. So we had to figure out how to get them out of their dorms rooms, get them together, secure them so they're safe, and then get them on an airplane. You know, Um, so that was a pretty, and actually it didn't take very long, but it was it was kind of a complicated task. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then moving a herd of cats, almost like everybody stay together. They were happy to move. (laughs) They were happy to to get going. You know. yeah, y'all probably rescue. I feel like if I recall, it's like eighty something or a hundred something people. Like it was, it was, a, it was a good bit of people, right? Students. Yeah, wasn't there a lot? There were, there was a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all I remember, all I remember from the students, and this is kind of juvenile, is uh, 
because we knew the Marines were involved in this operation. You know, you talked about the inner house yeah. competition. And, and one of the reasons we jumped later than we wanted to, we wanted to jump at night, early, early morning before the sun come up so we couldn't be seen. But the Marines, it's my understanding, the Marines had a hard time with the weather and their amphibious vehicles getting to the north part of the island, so we had to delay it. So by the time we jumped, it was daylight. And we, we weren't really happy about that. Yeah. No. So so <laughs> I remember getting a bunch of students together, and, and we were sending them to the airfield to get on the plane, and the word was they were going to fly them, I think, to Charleston, I think is what the word was. I just remember talking me and a few other guys were just saying, listen, when you guys go back, we are not Marines. <laughs> okay? <laughs> just remember that. Uh, so I just I just remember that. <laughs> we are Rangers <laughs> from the Army. We are not Marines. Like, oh, okay, thanks, Marines. Like, wait, no, you didn't hear me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was rather juvenile, but I remember distinctly making that comment to some of the students. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I guess later on they came up with what's the the joint operation uh, command? What's that called? Yeah, uh, there is one. Yes, that be, probably because of a situation like this where we don't need fifteen different cooks. We need to have one. Uh, I thought there was a JSOC. Is that what it's called or something like that? Where but they have a joint thing where now all the pieces are being moved by that's right one central thing versus everybody. So you get the students back to the airfield, which is also super scary because, you know, you, you, this part you've probably seen in movies where people pop out of a door. You don't know who it is. Like, well, we had to guy. finish. We had to finish clearing the the dorms. The dorms. So we had to go room to room and clear the dorms to make sure everybody was out, uh, which was actually uh, it was quite it was a good job to have because that's the first time we went into a couple of dorms. You know, they had refrigerators, so they had cold water in their refrigerator. So. <laughs> We, we got to drink some cold water, which we were very happy about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the little things in life, That's you know. The little things in life. Yeah. Um, so, some cold water. Uh, so you secure the campus. Did y'all move them in trucks, or did you have to walk? They walked. They walked. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you walked back to about they, the, a couple of miles. The campus was literally at the end of the airfield. I mean, literally. Oh. Maybe two hundred meters. And why was there no opposition on the campus? Well, the way the way. Well, for one, they were Americans, and I don't think they were, even though they were under curfew, uh, I don't think their intent was to harm the Americans. But the president, at that time, President Reagan, was fearful that they could be harmed. Oh, okay, okay. And so by the time we got pulled off the hill from the perimeter, there may have been some opposition up there, but they had left. Okay. We didn't run into any. They didn't want to die. We didn't run into any when we were getting the students out and getting them back to the airfield. I got you. Uh, and so you get them back to the airfield. I guess at this point, a plane or some have landed at this point. Yeah. And so you get them back up. How long did y'all shortly, stay? Not exactly. They had to, we held them for a short period until the planes started to land. And I don't remember how long that was. Okay. But there was a period of time there where they just, we just had them in a group. Uh, and how long were y'all there on the island? All not long. Uh, we, that was Tuesday. And uh, we came home on Saturday, um, oh. so it was a very short period for our mission. I mean, for there you. were American troops on the island for a long time, but as far as what our mission was, was to take the airfield, rescue the students, secure the perimeter. And once all that was done, then the uh, 82nd came in and landed. Which is the airborne troopers. Yeah, but they 
they landed on the airfield and then they started going throughout the whole country you know, oh, okay. and just kind of making sure everything was peaceful and stuff like that. Um, so our mission was pretty much done after the few days there. Um, there was a couple of um, pretty intense skirmishes. One was with the prison, rescuing, breaking out a prison. Uh, the other was there was a um, an American Jeep team that had gotten ambushed. So... Part of taking over airfields, you have these jeep teams, and they drive out and do blocking positions to stop people coming on the airfield and so forth. So, this particular, and you got to remember, the maps we had were garbage. Basically, right. we, we had tourist maps almost. No satellites at this point. Yeah. No. <laughs> and so we didn't know. It was hard to determine roads and how far to go. You, you just didn't have that technology. The GPSs were not existing. So this jeep team. Uh, went out of the perimeter on their own and they went too far and they got out of the protection of the Americans, of the Rangers and the Jeep team got ambushed and oh I should know three, four were killed on the Jeep maybe four Uh, one guy survived and he came back to the perimeter totally distraught and just said we got ambushed. They're all dead, um, and so that was that was important. That's a significant event because on the back of the jeep was at that well, it was a Stinger missile. You know, oh. now at that point, Stinger missiles were pretty important. They were pretty high tech. Today, they're they're still very important, but they're not as much as what we the new tools we have. You know? Yeah. So we did not want the Stinger missile to get into the hands of the enemy. Oh, they man. They shoot down an airplane. So my squad was tasked to go to the go find the Jeep and get the missile off the Jeep and bring the missile back. Wow. So that was an interesting... Had they taken it off the Jeep, or did they even realize that it was a well, Stinger it's, missile? It's part of the it's part oh, of it's the part Jeep. Of, did it's they just take attached. It? Who did? The enemy? Yeah, they no, didn't. they didn't take it. They just ambushed the jeep, and it stood there. It stayed there. Oh, okay. Uh, he got back, and at that point, we really didn't know what was going on with the jeep. We didn't have any satellite imagery. We didn't have anything to reach out there and look at it. So we just had to go to where about where he told us it was and find the jeep, and then try to locate it. Um, Did y'all uh, bring the troops? Bring the the boys who uh, were ambushed? Did you bring those? Bodies back. And well, we went. It was just my squad, so there was only a handful of us that went out, and we had one platoon leader, lieutenant, and uh, so we're we're going out. We find the we find the jeep. We can see the jeep, so we're we we take over basically this house that's on a hill that overlooks the little valley where the jeep is. Um, so we we take that over if that's a good overlook to launch the jeep and we could tell with the binoculars that the missile was still on the jeep so we knew that so now we had to get to basically get to the jeep um so half of the squad walked maneuver down to go get to the jeep and when right before they got to the jeep they got ambushed uh and the lieutenant that was with us was shot several times and so at that point 
it's a little crazy because we're out by ourselves. Of course, the radios don't work. They never work. We couldn't call for help. Uh, so it was just us up there. And In the house? Well, half of us were in the house overlooking, and the other half was down below getting the... Tina, this the is Jeep. literally Heartbreak Ridge right now. <laughs> they literally stole the, the exact operation. This is This is crazy. Yeah, I never saw it, so I don't know. Go Army, though. But So the lieutenant was shot up pretty good. So at this point, you know, we we fired back to eliminate the enemy. We don't know if we eliminated them or they just ran, but we fired back. Um, and then we got to get the lieutenant to help. That was the first mission. And then recover yeah. the Jeep again. <laughs> so the lieutenant was a big boy. He was like 6'2", six 6'3", six maybe. He was freshly graduated. Not freshly graduated. He was a Virginia Tech football player, I believe. Um and the hill was pretty steep, right. so you know we and we're tired Ugh, and we're yeah. we're hot, and uh, so we alternate carrying him up the hill, you know. And again, he's got bullet holes in him, you know, so it's not pleasant for him either, you know. We finally get him up to the house, and basically put him down on the patio of the house, and we have a medic there, and the medic starts working on him, and then we go back down to do what we can do with the jeep, you know. And while we are trying to get back to the enemy, they didn't seem too concerned about the Jeep. I guess they just didn't realize what was on the Jeep. Yeah. You know, um, while we're back down there, these uh, BTR-60s, which is an armored vehicle with wheels that the, the Russians have, and they started to come down the road towards the Jeep. Oh, gosh. And so we, we got into a little skirmish with that and then realized, you know, okay, we need to, get the lieutenant back, you know, because he's, he's going to die if we don't get him back. So, again, we didn't have any radios. We didn't have any way to communicate with anybody. So, um, luckily, the the people at the perimeter thought something must be wrong. They heard the noise. They didn't hear any radio contact, so they sent a jeep to our location, which was great because at that point now we could – the lieutenant was still alive. We worked on him medically. And we put him on the Jeep and was able to drive him back to the perimeter. And they flew him out to the ship. Let's go. Uh, I think it was called the Roosevelt, that the ship that was out there to, to get worked on. Wow. And so did you have to go back out to the missile Jeep? No, after we got the lieutenant, what it, it what had happened, to the best of my knowledge, um, we did not go back down to the Jeep because what happened, these BTRs came down the road, right? Yeah, and what didn't make any sense to us is they were going down the road, but they were headed towards our perimeter, which is where where the rangers are. Yeah, you know where we are. And I'm thinking, why are they going that way? They don't even be going that way. And they they just kept going, and it was it was it was comical in a sense. But you couldn't. They got behind the bushes and the trees, and you couldn't see them. But as soon as they got out of our vision. And they got to where you could know they were close to the perimeter. You just heard these big guns go off, which the Rangers carry. We carry these uh, anti-take weapons at that time called 90 millimeter Wacolus rifles, and you could just hear one go boom, and you could see smoke come up. <laughs> so you, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, there were two of them, and so you heard another shot. So then, about five minutes later. I guess, well, the first one now, I, we knew now, we knew later that the first one was totally eliminated. The second one got hit, 
but it didn't get totally destroyed. So it turned around and starts coming back down the road, but it's all messed up. It's like it's all tore up. It's got a flat tire, but it just it keeps going away. So at that point, we really weren't concerned about the missile because they didn't seem very interested in it, and we felt like the perimeter was going to move out. So they went and we got the lieutenant back, and then they went and got the bodies and everything in the Jeep. Man, that this is intense, T Dub. And that I don't even know what day that was. Um, that was, was that was a day of, you know, after Tuesday, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Before Saturday, yeah. after Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean that's that just goes to show like the uncertainty of combat, like the uncertainty of you know of what's going to happen. You have a plan and. Most of the time, that plan does not work out. You know, you have to yeah. adapt to the situation. Ninety percent of the time, it doesn't work out. Yeah, um, and only one ranger was it was named Mark. You said he was the first. He was the first. Okay, um, but several casualties. Um, man, and then did you feel like? And you can tell me to to hush if you want me to. But did this change? Your perspective, I mean, like, like in life of just, no, this stuff is real. Like that's, I mean, that's combat, you know. Um, you know, the the interesting part was during the whole operation, um, your adrenaline is just going, and you're just doing. You know, you're just you're reacting just like a ranger school. You're just trying to get to the other side. You know. Um, but then we got to a point where we were we kind of knew we were done and we we kind of relaxed a little bit and everybody was feeling pretty good you know everybody was sad but everybody was feeling pretty good about what they had done um and then the word came down we had another mission and then all of a sudden everybody's like everybody everybody just flipped we're like what you know so your emotions you're at you're at that point where you were feeling relaxed. It's all done. We're gonna head back, and then all of a sudden, boom! There's another mission. So everybody really starts to gear back up, and their nerves start to get a little bit on edge. You know. Um, wait, wait, what? What was the next mission? Um, it was. Ha- it had to do with the um, the prison, the compound, and so some helicopters came in to pick up some guys, and. Uh, I was on chalk four, I think, or five. I can't remember, but I never got on the plane. I never got on the helicopter. The first chalks left, which is the first series of helicopters left. Um, they had some issues, but they ended up not taking another chalk in. They ended up figuring out, and they didn't need okay. the rest of us. But it was just that gut of that like, gut of oh, like, okay, yeah, okay, yeah you yeah. know. Uh, and you know, it's it spiritually, it's. Um, you know, I mean, I think at, at that time, you know, I was a Christian, but I definitely was not living the Christian life. There, mm-hmm. There's no way you could pretend otherwise. Um, and so, yes, I prayed. I prayed a lot. And I would, I always tell this, you know, I think that the prayer of a mom, I, I can't, sh- it's nowhere in the Bible. Right. But I think the prayer of a mom for her child is probably more powerful than anything. And I know my mom was praying for me. And I always give her credit for that. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, because I really felt like there was, it was just so many times where it could have been, but it wasn't, you know, and you always want to ask your question why, but mm-hmm. no one knows why. It's just the way it is. Sometimes it's just bad luck, you know. Um, so spiritually, it really hit me because I felt guilty for praying, you know, because I knew I was, I was that guy. Okay, Lord, you get me out of this, and then I'll be good for the rest of my life kind of thing, you know. And I knew better than that. I grew up in church. I went to church three days a week, you know, so I knew that storyline, you know. Right. Um, so I was I was kind of guilty. I was feeling guilty for doing that. But I do remember thanking the Lord, you know, for, for sparing my life for whatever reason, which I had no idea why, you know, but... It was it was quite a spiritual moment for me. Um, then getting back, uh, you know, my parents knew at that point. My parents knew we were gone, but that's all they knew. They right. didn't know who who had died, who had lived. They didn't know anything. So once again, before <clears throat> all the social media, all the fifteen thousand yeah. news networks and coverage on everything. This is the eighties, I mean, early eighties. Yeah. So. Mom and dad got in a car and just drove from Virginia Beach, drove on their way to Savannah, you know, because they wanted to know. And so they had heard on the news. I I can't remember. They knew we were coming back that weekend or something. I don't know. Um, So, and they knew the number to the barracks because, you know, that's how they would get a hold of me. And so they didn't know whether I was alive or dead. They didn't know. They just knew there was a handful of rangers who were killed, but they didn't know who. So when we got back to the barracks, we went through our normal procedure, you know, start cleaning weapons, getting everything cleaned up and, you know, turned in. And uh, my dad had called what we call the CQ, which is the guy who answers the phone. It's a duty. And he had answered the phone, and my dad had asked for me. And the guy said, I see him around here somewhere. I'm not sure where he is. And that was the first confirmation confirmation and dad said well you just tell them we're on our way stay put <laughs> well, we're not going anywhere you know but uh so that's the first confirmation they had you know that i was alive yeah so when we got released you know i can't even remember now i guess it was saturday night probably we got released or maybe sunday morning it's probably saturday night we got released and i got to see my mom and dad you know and they stayed for a day or so and went back home well this is where you know, I know we went out of timeline here, but this is to me is super important to know this story because this is in '83. You were signed back in '80 or in '85 to re up for four more years. So you had gone through, and that's why I asked that because you just went through a, a, a the word incredible, but not incredible as in a sense like of a, of awesomeness, but incredible as in this is not normal, right? This is a this is an operation where. People were killed. You were shot at. It's stressful. It's you don't know if if a if a, a, a single bullet just boom you're out. One fly shot boom. One ricochet boom. You know one parachute of five hundred feet, which is unheard of. I'm glad you didn't have to do five hundred feet at night because that'd be even scarier. Uh, but it would have been safer. It would have been safer. <laughs> yeah, it would have been safer, uh, but also a little scarier. Um, but you're in this, and so that's what I'm saying. That mindset in '85, you're 22 years old. 
why did you go, you know, I can do four more years, <laughs> you know, versus going, you know what? I've seen some things. I've been through some things. I think I've done my time. Well, a lot of, a lot of guys did, um, and nothing against that. That's fine. Um, but you know, I think somewhere along that point, I said to myself, yeah, I'm, I, I'm good at this. I can do this. Right. You know, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I absolutely love my country <coughs> and doing what I do. And I love the brotherhood of who we, you know, guys I serve with. I mean, we're mm-hmm. family. There's, you can't do anything about that. That's their, their family. And so it just became a, a new love for me. Just mm-hmm. love what I'm doing, you know. Do you have some guys that you still talk to from that era? All the time. Yeah. All the time? Yeah. That I mean, it's a brotherhood, right? It is. Uh, you know, my dad uh, was deployed to Iraq in 2005. And I, I like to specify the year because my brother went to Afghanistan in 2019. 2019 and and that, I'm not saying it wasn't unsafe for my brother. I mean, it was traumatic. But 2005, Iraq was a wild, wild west. I mean, it was crazy. Um, and he still talks about his army buddies that are like, I know their names, like almost like they're cousins of mine. Yeah. Of like, oh, Sergeant Clark? Yeah, I know Sergeant Clark. Sergeant Denny? Yeah, I know Sergeant Denny. Uh, uh, Sergeant Sonnen? I know Sergeant Sonnen. Like, like, I know all these guys <laughs> who, like, because he talks about them. And I feel like Caleb and Jamie probably could name a couple of your army buddies because it's a brotherhood, yeah. especially when you serve in a I think in a combat zone and especially like when you're in and you're a really tight unit in the ranger even more and you so. have um you have mutual respect for each other mm-hmm. you know and you also whenever you go through somebody go through something with somebody that's painful right you know whether it be a football tryout or whatever you know it you you come close to that person because you shared that pain that experience and mm-hmm. so for us it wasn't just a, a tryout. It was our daily life. It was every day we were doing something, you know, and so you really, really became close. And it, it's really hard to say because um, when I talk to people in general, I, I try to be cautious a lot of times with my words. Right. Um, because I'm always afraid I might say the wrong thing or hurt somebody's feelings or whatever. But when I get around my ranger buddies, I, it just, you don't care if you're hurting somebody's feelings. You're not. You're just telling the truth. Right. <laughs> Dude, you're fat. You're overweight. You, know, you need to get a haircut. You look like crap or whatever. I mean, you just say it. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. You're not, yeah. And, and everybody takes it with love, you mm-hmm. know. But I would never say that to somebody, you know, other than my ranger buddies, you know, because yeah. I know they're not going to you know, wear their emotions on their sleeves and be all upset. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Um, I once, uh, when I was a kid, my dad and his army buddies we were, went to like, some restaurant. I don't know. Like, they, they, like we went to go visit, and they, we all went and ate like, at a, like an Applebee's or something. And there was like seven of them. And I was just, I was a kid, maybe middle school. And... The amount of curse words that I heard from seven people in under like three minutes would would it was like I don't even know like the create I just they're just all army buddies and yeah. they just I was like what in the world am I witnessing right now? And I guess um, that is unfortunate, but that <laughs> the vocabulary is 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 not Harvard vocabulary. Yeah, it is, it is not. Uh, but I I do so for those listening. So we're in eighty five. You resign in ninety one. 
I believe you moved to Dahlonega, right? Ninety. Ninety. Oh, I was close. I want you to. I want you to come in how good my friendship is. I was pretty close because uh, I remember things. We talked a lot. I've known you for a long time. When does the love of your life come into the picture? Uh, well, I I left battalion. I left first battalion after the Panama invasion. Okay, which the Panama invasion happened in '89, Christmas of '89. Um, Whoa, we were jumped. you part of that as well? Right, that was Operation. Yes, yeah. Wait, oh my gosh, wait, you were part of two military operations? I thought it was just Grenada. No, no, you missed that. Well, so Panama was the Panama Canal. I don't. I know less about this one. Panama was Operation Just Cause. Just Cause. For Noriega. Okay. In, Noriega. In 89, what was your ranger role in that? Uh, that's an interesting story because um, up until the time I re-enlisted, I was an infantry guy. Uh, and then after, after Grenada, the Army decided that they needed three Ranger Battalions and not two. At that time, we only had two. So the, the one in Washington. So they, right. So they wanted to form a third Ranger Battalion. So then they created a regiment of three, three battalions and a regimental headquarters. So we had a regimental commander come in. So up until that point, each battalion was controlled by their battalion commander. So my boss, my big boss, was at Hunter, mm-hmm. Savannah. That was our boss. What rank would that be? He would have been a light colonel. A light, okay. So he doesn't report. He's, he's, he's in charge. Yeah, okay. Okay, so then we get a regiment. So now we have a third battalion at Columbus, and now we have a higher headquarters. So now we have a regimental commander. Columbus, Georgia? Right. Okay. So the regimental command, regimental commander came out with a policy that if you have been in battalion, and I want to say it was like five years or more, that you needed to leave. Because part of what the Rangers were formed to do, again, goes back to leadership. They wanted guys to get all this leadership, go out to the Army and spread and it. Spread it you know, okay. And then maybe come back later. So I had been past that point, so I was on the block to, to having to leave, but I wasn't ready to leave. E4, E5 at this time? I would. I was E5, E6 maybe? No, I was E5. I was E5. Uh, I was a buck sergeant. So uh, there were several of us in that boat, and some guys just said, well, we'll just, I'll go ahead and leave and come back. But there was a few of us that said, yeah, I, we really don't want to go. So what do we do? We couldn't figure out what to do. But this is when we were due to, to re-enlist, you know. So it was, um, they had a bear, they had this program where if you re-enlisted under a certain job skill, um, you could get a bonus. And, of course, we're all about money. Yeah, you know, we come on, money. yeah. So we thought, well, what if we re-enlist? under one of these different jobs that the Ranger Battalion has, then we can stay. So the, the jobs were... <laughs> yeah, was, I'm trying to play the system. That's there what was y'all a, doing. There was a medic. You could re-enlist as a medic. Of course, the Ranger Battalion has medics. And there was uh, forward observers, which is an artillery world. Forward, forward observers call artillery in for the big guns. Oh, okay. But in the Ranger Battalion, it's completely different. The forward observers do close air support, naval gunfire, gunship, Stuff like that. So me and a buddy said, well, let's just be FOs, you know, and then our time will start over again. So we re-enlisted as 13 Fox. At that point, it was 13 Fox. 
drove out to Fort Steele, AIT, as E5s <laughs> with a bunch oh, of gosh. brand new privates. Uh, came back to battalion, and then basically the clock started ticking again. So then our clock started time time-wise it's like a new assignment for us mm-hmm. so then i was a forward observer in the range battalion and i had uh, stayed there as a forward observer until panama and when panama came i was what's called the fire the battalion fires part in fire support nco and i was actually i was due to leave uh i was really supposed to leave battalion it may have been around 88 because uh, what happens is you get tired. Yeah. You know, physically you get exhausted, and mentally you get exhausted, and you just kind of need a break. Uh, and I had been there a long time, yeah. and I was ready to take a break. And so I had put my packet in to leave. Um, to regular army or to no, retire? To, 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 or to get come out. to Delonica, actually. But at that point in battalion, there were only, I was one of the very, very few Halo jump masters. And so if I left, there was nobody to to train new jump masters. What, what does Halo mean? High altitude, low opening. It's like a military skydiving okay. type deal. And so we needed that we needed that job skill. And so the commander said, basically, I understand you want to leave. You you deserve it. You can leave, but we really need you here for another year or so until we can get more slots to send people to Halo Jumpmaster to get qualified, because it's a very hard school. Um, and then once they get qualified and we get enough, then we'll, we'll let you go. So they moved me to they moved me to uh, an easier job position. Basically, I was what's in the, in the, in the Ranger world. We call it special skills. So I, w- I went to that position to where we just controlled Halo Jump, scuba stuff, things like that. And... I wasn't in the line, so it was it was much easier work, and my job was to stay there until to be the Halo Jumpmaster. Yeah, until we get some more people qualified from Halo Jumpmaster. So I hung around a little bit. That happened, and so Panama. then okay. So then I called uh, Ranger assignments, and I said, "Okay, now I can leave. I want to go to Delonica." And the guy at Ranger assignments said, "Well, you can't go as a thirteen because they don't have thirteens." Lock trots at Ranger School yeah. being instructor. You got to be eleven Bravo. I said, "Well, my secondary is eleven Bravo." I said, "Who make who can make me eleven Bravo again?" He said, "Well, I can." I said, well, "Okay, well, let's do it." <laughs> so, <laughs> boom, paperwork. Now I'm back to being eleven Bravo. Because you had already been eleven Bravo, right. which is infantry. Right. right. Shout out to eleven Bravos, my dad and brother eleven Bravos. Um, now, but but Panama. You were there during that conflict in Panama. Were you the Halo? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, I was actually, you know, it, I had out-processed the uh-huh. unit. I had out-processed the 1st Ranger Battalion, turned in all my stuff. Um, and this was the weekend. And on Monday, I was to drive to Delonica. That was the day I was going to leave and drive to Delonica. Also on Monday, the Ranger Battalion was going to take leave. The -hmm. entire battalion was going to go what we call block leave. Well, the phone rang Sunday, and it was a notification. And now I had basically out-processed. I didn't sign completely out, but I had out-processed. And I got that, and I went, why would they call a notification on the night before 
everybody's to go on block leave. So I talked to my, I just thought, hmm, I need to go in and see what's going on. So when I went in to the unit, I was living off post at this time. When I went into the unit, the 18 hour sequence of deployment had started. And, oh, I, and I walked so, into yeah. the headquarters where my commander was and he just said, you know, Sergeant Numley, he said, uh, this is what's happening. Do you want to go? And I said, sure. <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> remember that program I told you about RIP? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said, well, go to RIP <laughs> and get some of that gear <laughs> and and come back. So I had to go to RIP, get me a rucksack, get me some equipment, LBE, get all my stuff, come back to the headquarters. And then I got back, and uh, he informed me that uh, at that point, Again, I don't want to be inaccurate, but at that point, there was only a few of us. I'd say less than five of us that were there still from Grenada and had wow. experienced Grenada. Yeah. So, Which is uh, valuable to have military experience. So yeah. because of that, he said, uh, we're going to make you a primary jump master on one of the airplanes going in. And I said, yeah, mm -hmm. roger that. It's always good. So I ended up jump mastering, which is putting out the troops and jumped. Uh, yeah. But I ended up jump mastering uh, aircraft one onto the airfield that we went on. Um, well, because you're uh, cause, and you're yeah. Halo certified too. I mean, yeah, but master. Halo has nothing to do with that jump. It's, that's it's another combat jump at 500 feet. Oh, so this time we did so jump slow. at night. Uh, was it night? Yeah, it was at night. <laughs> and uh, you know, we we so I was I made I uh, put my air put my guys out, made the jump. Um, was on the ground just not very long as far as days-wise. Mm -hmm. uh, that operation got in control pretty quick, unlike Grenada. It wasn't, it wasn't as chaotic as Grenada. Was say, much was, more smooth. Was there less opposition? Yeah. You know? so, okay. Well, no, the opposition on the initial jump was pretty, pretty intense. But it you went see tracers and stuff? But it went away pretty quick after we got on the ground. <laughs> we were just more organized. Everything happened much more like it should have happened. Well, and by this point, too, not that I'm not trying to diss the early Rangers, but now you're over a decade old, so you are a little bit more coming into who you are. Because that, that Grenada, you're still kind of in that infant phase right. of Exactly, yeah, Rangers and, and, and we were used to working with the other units now. Yeah. You know, so, and, you know, remember me telling you the story about going into Grenada, the first few planes turned because they right. were getting... Well, that was a huge deal. That screwed up the whole low plan on the field, yeah. on the airfield. So one of the, I remember being in the jump master brief for Panama, the Air Force colonel, I believe he was, when he was briefing his pilots, he said, here's one thing you're not going to do. You're not going to turn your plane around. You're going to fly that plane straight. You're going to keep it on the jump azimuth, and you're not going to turn till you get to the other side over the ocean. <laughs> and he says, this is not going to happen like it did in basically Grenada. And I, to, to, kudos to the pilots because when I was hanging out the aircraft, uh, checking everything for my jumpers to go out, those planes, I mean, you could see a lot of the planes because there were multiple airfields we were mm -hmm. jumping at. Everybody was just on track. Our planes flew straight as an arrow. They received a lot of fire from the ground, but they never once turned. They just kept flying straight, which was so important for us to get our people out onto the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, did they? Uh, this is a little side, quick question. Are they not army pilots? No. Okay, there's army helicopter pilots, yes, but no airplane pilots. All air force. Air force. Okay, got it. For, uh, the, for the big airplanes. For yes. the big airplanes. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. 
Uh, and so when you land there, there is opposition, but it's, since it's so organized and y'all are more of who you are coming into it, y'all get into it pretty quick and, and get the airfield secured. Yeah, and it that's right. And not just our airfield, but across the whole country. Everybody was working in, in unison. And it just went, oh, like the Navy was doing their part and the, the other, Marines. Other Rangers on the other airfields, you know, the... SF guys were there. So everybody was working together, and it just became a really nice operation. Um, to tie in the spiritual part, you yeah. know, like backed up from the Grenada. So I would say, you know, that little conversation I had didn't go very far on Grenada because I, I still wasn't living the spiritual life that I should mm-hmm. be living. So the when we get the Jumpmaster brief about the airfield, one of the things we find out is at the very end of the airfield, the airfield that I'm jumping on, there is a mound and there is a 50 caliber machine gun with three people. And that way they could cover the airfield. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that's not good because as a jump master, I'm the last guy to get out. So that's where I would land. I would land near the end of the airfield, which is where that machine gun position was. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, God's getting even with me now because, you know, I said I would do this, and I didn't. And now here I am again, you know. So on the plane ride down, I have a headset on. I'm getting, we're getting updates on the ground situation. But really, I just kind of ignored everything just to wait to hear about <laughs> is the machine gun still active, <laughs> you know, because we had, we had SF guys on the ground giving right. us intel. And so it at the last update I got before I had to take off my headset was the machine gun was still active. So I got, I got really nervous cause I had to take my headset off cause we had to in-flight rig. So we had to put the parachutes on while we were in the plane. It's called in-flight rigging and that takes time. So we're doing all that, me and my assistant jump masters and the other guys and we're getting everybody, getting everybody ready to jump. And I was still worried. I was just worried about that machine gun thinking, okay, this is it. I'm going to get blasted. Because you're landing closer to it, and then just wah. Yeah, because I'm going to be right yeah. next to it, you know. So uh, I, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, this is this is it. I get it. But let me see what I can do, you know. So <clears throat> I talked to the Air Force crew chief. The crew chief's the guy who controls basically the back of the airplane. And I told the crew chief, I said, uh, I want a green light 20 seconds early. He said, you're not going to be over the drop zone. I said, that's okay, because in my doors, I had two motorcycles going out both doors, and the Air Force guys, the <laughs> combat control guys, were going to jump out with their motorcycles, and they have their own mission on the ground. And I thought, well, notoriously, whenever we jump the motorcycles, they take forever to get out the door. They get hung up a lot, and the Air Force guys, they're particular. They don't want you to touch their motorcycles. They want to get it out the door themselves and so forth. So I said, well, if I can get them out a few seconds early, they got a motorcycle. They can make up the distance that they're going to be away from the airfield. Right. But that'll put me further away from the machine gun position. So the load master said, oh, okay, you get it. So I told my other jump masters, I said, listen, when those, when those bikes are going to go in the door, when that green light comes on, they're out. And if they're not out, then you kick them out. <laughs> I said, yeah. they need to get out the door. And they knew why. They were like, oh, yeah, roger that. We're, we'll get them out. 
And so I figured I felt better because I felt like I was taking charge. Okay, that's going to keep me away from that machine gun position, you know. Uh, the other thing, I don't mean to get too confusing, but the other part of this was we knew the Panamanian Defense Force wore our uniforms. They wore BDUs. They wore the same uniforms because they got oh, them from us. that's confusing. So when we jumped, we jumped with burlap in our helmets so that at night when you're looking through their night vision, you can see the silhouette of the burlap. You knew that was an American and not, you know, an enemy guy. So as a jump master, part of what you do is before the jump, you're kind of hanging out the aircraft, checking the door, making sure there's no bars around the edge. Everybody's static line won't get cut and you're checking the airspace and so forth. And it's also a good way to get fresh air because the ride really, you know, <laughs> kind of make you a little sick. So I do a lot of hanging out because uh, the doors opened up pretty early and you can see a lot of air to ground fire. Um, but the wind you know, catches your helmet and pushes it back. And I didn't even think about it, but it was stretching my chin strap. Don't even think about it, you know. So time comes up, light turns green, the bikes start to go out, they get stuck, obviously. And we had a hard time getting them out. We finally get them out, and then uh, we start pushing the jumpers out. I jump out, last guy to go out, and my helmet falls off. <laughs> Because it was so stretched for me hanging oh, out for gosh. so long. Yeah. So now I don't have a helmet to identify me as an American oh. when I hit the ground. And when I hit the ground, I literally was 15 feet from this machine gun position. But there was nobody there. So I was like, okay, Lord, I get it now. At what point when you're, when you're jumping and like it's pitch, I mean, I say it's pitch black. You don't have night vision goggles. Not while you're jumping. Not while you're jumping. And when do you start seeing the truck? Like, like when you're like on the ground, like you're coming down. Like the the machine gun, the machine gun it wasn't in the truck. It was on the ground. Oh, it was on the ground. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. At what point do you see that? Not until I got there. Yeah. And, and so you get to the ground and you look up and you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, yeah. all right, God, this is my sign. Like, yeah. And then I had to find a helmet. So you don't get shot by your own That's right. friendlies. That was my next priority. Like, <laughs> did did it? Fall on the ground somewhere? Like, did it you did fall. It? Uh, I ended up getting another one from somebody that wasn't wearing it. And so uh, a couple of days later, someone found it because you had your names on it, and they brought it to me. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, so you kind of made the jump twice. You made the jump, and your helmet made the jump. Uh, and so that was, a, that was a big spiritual moment for you in the sense of like, I, God, all right, I keep telling you I'm going to get my life on track, and – I kind of fall short on it. And then I get these moments of like, oh, this is pretty serious. Yeah. And so that kind of was one of those big kick in the butts to get it serious. Uh, and how long were you there for that? I wasn't on the ground very long. Um, you know, we jumped on the 20th. We were there through Christmas. We were there, um, I'd say, maybe 10 days. Okay. Uh, and then... And then we started sending people back, you know, for certain, I mean, life goes on. So right. we had guys that needed to go to uh, professional development schools. We had guys that were supposed to PCS like me, you know, just different reasons you would send people back that um, weren't needed at that time. So everything was pretty much under control. So, okay. So, so yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I came back on one, on one of the planes and then 
officially signed out and then came to Delonica. Now and that was in January of of ninety. Of ninety. So when you came back, why did you pick Delonica? Because you'd never been there before, besides Ranger School, right? Right. So you just thought, I just want to work there. Well, I didn't. I just, I just wanted a, a neat place to work. It was. It's an instructor position, so it's it's not. Oh, okay, so you went not, there more for the job than the location. Yeah, it's not really a high tempo, and um, I really didn't want to go to Florida because <laughs> um, I didn't like Florida. I thought I would yeah. like the mountains more. Yeah. So, I wanted to come to Delonica. So your your uh, your reign of kingdom of Delonica started in January nineteen ninety. Uh, and have you met Robbie at this point? Oh no, 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 no. So she's not here. So you're here, nineteen ninety. You're working the ranger camp. Uh, when do you start uh, meeting? Like getting to what I know you now as. Like, did you work there for how long? I was there from uh, 90 to 93. Okay. At that point, when did you meet Robbie? Uh, I hadn't been there very long, Um, but let's see, a few months maybe, because we were married in June of 91. Um, Wait, that's, okay, all right, that's super fast. And so you there in 90, you met her in 1990 at some point. How did you meet? Was she like working in the the cafeteria no, or something? Like no, that? I I was playing on a softball team, a travel softball team, and she was best friends with the the coach's girlfriend. Um, so the guy that coached our travel team was Robbie's best friend. Oh, okay. And so we had a Sunday practice one day to get ready for a tournament. And Robbie just came to practice with her, with her girlfriend, and that's how I met her. You're like, "What's up, girl?" And she's like, "Oh, he's a ranger." I, was I, like, don't, I don't think she was impressed. <laughs> oh, she wasn't. <laughs> no, no, but but y'all definitely. Uh, I mean, I guess that's over a year. I mean, y'all dated probably a year or so before yeah, right y'all at, got mm-hmm. married. Yeah. Um, and then didn't y'all live in Alaska at some point? Yeah, I stayed at camp. This is the t- folks, I want you to know, this man is, he's done a lot of different lives. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> I, I stayed at camp another uh, two years, till 93. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was ready to leave Georgia at that point, ready to see something else. And so uh, I was either go to either go to Italy or go to Alaska. I was trying to figure out. And oh, so I was casual. Thought, I thought Alaska would be neat. And so uh, we, I got assigned to Alaska. There's an airborne. There was an airborne unit in Alaska at at uh, Anchorage, called Task Force um, Five Hundred First, and it was an airborne unit. And so that's where I got assigned. Is that your first non-ranger assignment? Yes. Was that a big, like, was that weird for you? It, it was weird, but it was really good um, because it was. I would say it was a bigger leadership challenge. Okay. Because, um, you know, I got signed there. I was a platoon sergeant at that time, so I had four right. squads. You know, E6? About, E7. E, E7. 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 Yeah, so I had four squads, you know, 40-some guys, but these weren't Ranger guys. These were regular Army guys, and a lot of them didn't want to be there, but you can't get rid of them, you know, because right. it's a different type of world. So you have to motivate them to work to get things done, you know, and, and so I had to figure that out. I had to figure out how I was going to do that with these guys. And, uh, 
it was it was an interesting few years. I really I would have to say that's that experience was for leadership wise, it was probably more important to me than anywhere else I'd done. Because you know, to lead lead guys that want to be there, lead guys that uh, are motivated, cleaning the crop, lead guys yeah. that are right top of uh, top of the world. You know, it's it's a little bit easier if you're physically fit and you can lead by example. It's a little bit easier to do that, but to try to take charge of guys who aren't exposed to that, who aren't happy with the army, mm-hmm. you know, they're just ready to get out, and you know, it's a different environment. I talk about in the teaching great people. World. They just yeah. they were just in a different different mindset so i had to figure that out because i had not been used to that we, we talk about in the teacher world it's like if you have a ap class who are seniors which means they're you know they're going to college they're they're studying they're getting off they're trying to get fives on their exams you know they're all academically challenged you know like we're gonna do that well they don't have a whole lot of classroom management versus i got a freshman class of 34 kids in there and some of them don't want to be in school but they had to be in this classroom anyways that teacher has to do a lot more classroom management and learn how to maybe connect in a, in a completely different way than you do in this elite ap class both yeah good, exactly yeah good things but one is way different um so that's interesting where like you're kind of like all right i'm going to cream the crop this ap class and now i'm going here and you're having to expand your leadership capabilities and and how you relate to people and talk to people. Exactly. Uh, that's Freedom. that's I mean, you gotta, yeah. it's all about how you take care of your people, you know. And so, when I signed into the unit, um, my squad leaders are taking me around, showing me every place, and we go to the arms room. And you know, a, a platoon is assigned, wep, you know, a block of weapons. So my mm-hmm. weapons might be one to fifty. And the next second platoon, they may be 51 to 100, and third platoon may be 101 or whatever. So they, I got into the arms room, and uh, the, the squalors were saying, you know, here in our weapons are this number, but whatever you get, don't let the armor give you weapon 47. And I'm like, well, why not 47? And they said, well, the last three platoon sergeants who had a weapon 47 either got fired or hurt. And I said, well, that's the one I want. <laughs> and so I took, I want weapon 47. They go, no, no, you really don't want it. I said, yeah, I do. I want it. So I, that's the weapon I got assigned. And then when I left uh, the unit a few years later, they got me a little plaque, and it said, to the man who broke the curse of weapon 47. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, that's so and, awesome. And, yeah. you know, I, and I really feel like I think I, I feel like I did pretty well with that group of guys because mm-hmm. – um, you kind of know how you do with them by how they treat you and how they respond. Right. And um, even today, two weeks ago, I got a text from one of them, you know, that's like, hey, how about a visit? I can come down. And he's a super successful businessman now, has his own plane. And he's like, I'll come down and fly in and me and Anderson and we'll, uh, you know, we'll visit you. So yeah, that means a lot because they, they must have felt like I did well mm-hmm. in looking after them, which is my goal. To look after them and make sure that you know they they're taken care of, but yet they're also they're trained in case we need to go somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I've, in my experience, sometimes not that you don't have an impact on that cream the crop, ranger crop, because that is a brotherhood. But sometimes the people who are not kind of like that, the one that your unit, 
they show a little more outward appreciation, and that feels pretty good too. Because you know they get you a plaque, you keep in touch with them, you know you're impacted them, uh, and it's just a reminder like, oh, I wrote the curse of forty seven. Yeah. Uh, great episode title, by the way. Uh, what is so that was from ninety three to what ninety six, probably three years. Yeah, my was, son was born in ninety five, and we left in ninety six. <clears throat> oh, Caleb was born in Alaska. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew that. Uh, was Robbie excited about Alaska? She was. She was. She okay. loved it. Over Italy, though. Well, we we'd never been to Italy, so we didn't know. <laughs> okay, but, okay. But she loved Alaska. She had, she? A, she had a great job, uh, and we really enjoyed living there. We I actually would have stayed another year if the army would have let me, but they didn't. They didn't want me to stay. Uh, oh, controversial. They like to move you. You know. Did it? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and so, where did you go? Did you retire? Or did you go back to? No, I actually I had orders to go to Italy. Because I'd come up on the promotion list to the E8, and I was going to go to Italy, mm-hmm. and we were excited about that. Um, and then about 60 days, maybe, maybe a little bit less than that, from leaving Ranger Assignments, calls me and says, hey, uh, we're going to have to take you off your orders to Italy. You're going to have to go back to Delonica. And I was like, dude, I just left Delonica three years ago. I'm not ready to go back. I, I want to go to Italy. And like, well... You can't because, and the reason is, there was, um, in Ranger School, since I had left, Florida Phase had, I think, three students, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, were, were killed um, oh. in, in training from, a, from I think it was hypothermia, maybe, or something. So Not alligators. No. Oh. There was a big investigation. And after the investigation, the recommendation was, they did a, a big investigation on all the camps, all three camps. They said the instructors with the knowledge and experience rotated out, and there was no, there, there has not been enough uh, experience with those people. Overlap, overlap with the yeah. new guys, and so we're losing expertise. We're losing, we're losing knowledge. So what they wow. said is, anybody who had been at camps before that had a successful tour. And we're in, we're rotating. Need to come back. So instead of me going to Italy, I so came back. So their to incompetence Monica. of how to run prevented you to go to Italy. I mean, that's really because they I mean they rotated people out and yeah. they didn't really think about that because I'm guessing as an instructor, it's your professional you know recommendation of if you see student you know John Smith over here, you have to be as an instructor go. He may not be quitting. But he's his <clears throat> life is at risk. Yes, and you had you get the right to pull them out, right? That's right. So I mean, there's probably times where that person is actually experiencing hypothermia. You're not picking up on the signs as an instructor, and you need to pick up on those signs and pull them out. But that person, as an instructor, apparently didn't have the experience. So they're like, "We gotta put people back so people stop yeah. dying." So yeah. I ended up coming back to Delonica. Uh, so you went there to pretty much, I guess they put you in, but did they prevent you from getting the EA slot? No, I still got promoted. So oh, that was part of, okay. Yeah. So you still said, well, hey, I better get my promotion. Yeah, I, No, no, no. I still got promoted and was a first sergeant at the ranger camp. Okay, well, let me ask you that. Um, I thought you were a master sergeant. Well, a master sergeant and a first sergeant are the same grade. Yeah, E8. E8. Yeah. A master sergeant is not in charge of troops and the first sergeant is in charge of troops. So you can have a different position. Okay. Just 
based upon your position. If you're in charge of people, then you are the first sergeant of that group. But if you're not in charge of people, you're a different position than you're a master sergeant. I got you. Because my dad was a first sergeant. They call him top. Do they call you top? Was that one of the nicknames? That word's not really used in the ranger community, but it's an army word, yes. Oh, it's an army word. Okay. Sorry, he's an elitist over here, the Rangers. We don't, no, we, just, we don't use it. It's just not something we use. Um, and so you went back there, so which I think, uh, well, it, Caleb could have been speaking Italian. Um, he lived in Italy for three years. So, but y'all come back here, and that's from what? That's what, 95? That would have been to, 96. To 99, to, three years? No, to 97, because uh, um, during that time period when I was at camp, I had a uh, back injury. Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. Yeah, and uh, I've always had a bad back. I mean, you just from jumping, jumping planes a and thousand, everything. Yeah. Just, your back just literally just hurts. Everybody's back hurts. But I had an episode where they were wanting to operate on me, and I did not want them to operate on me. So um, I had to see a bunch of specialists, and I did. I saw two civilian specialists and two military specialists on backs got advice from all of them and I felt like the best advice I got was from a um, athletic doctor down in Atlanta and he said I could operate on you no problem I don't I don't I wouldn't hesitate you could be operated on he said but if you can keep the pain out of your legs and modify your lifestyle that's what I would recommend if you can't keep it out of your legs then it's a quality of life issue. We definitely need to go in and take care of it now. But if you can modify your lifestyle to keep it out of your legs, I think you probably can live a good life like that. And I thought, well, the only way I'm going to do that is not jump out of planes, not carry a heavy ruck. Mm -hmm. So I either had to figure out what I was going to do. So I went back and I talked to the sergeant major of the camp and said, listen, I really don't want to get my back operated on. I said, uh, but I'm afraid if I keep jumping and doing this, then it's really going to hurt, and then, you know, you I mess get up serious permanently, problems. Yeah. So he said, well, why don't you go to ROTC? And I was like, I don't know what ROTC, remember, I, didn't, yeah. I just graduated high school. I don't know what college ROTC was. I said, well, what's ROTC? And he's like, you know, it's the college here in Dahlonega, those guys that wear those uniforms all around. Uh-huh. So I had no idea what he was talking about, and I thought, well, that'd be cool. Yeah, go over to college. Um, so he made a phone call, and they had a position opening. So I just basically went from the ranger camp to the college to work at the ROTC department at the college. Well, now, was that considered active duty, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that put you like an active duty? Oh, okay. So yeah. I went towards your years of service. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a ROTC is active duty. Okay. Well, I thought some of the guys are retired. There are. There's two. It's, it's complicated. Oh, okay, it's okay. It's confusing. It's not complicated, but it's confusing. There's two sides that. North Georgia College is a senior military college. Right. So One of a, six in the country. There's an active duty component there, and there's a retired component. The retired guys wear uniforms, but they work for the state. The active duty guys work for the Army, and they're federal employees. And they have two different missions. Oh. Uh, the active duty guys' missions is to teach and run ROTC to get the guys commissioned as officers and get them ready. The retired guys, they basically run the Corps, you know, which is the daily everything else, the daily, the barracks, they're making sure their grades are right, uh, inspections, parades. Did you have to report to those guys, though? Or did y'all work kind of more in <clears throat> tangent? Well, the active other? duty component officer was an 06, and the retired component 
was a retired 06. So, oh, so there's two colonels. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, one active, one retired. What? I did not know that. So my my last few years, I worked for the active duty colonel, mm-hmm. you know, and, that, and then I didn't really know what OTC was. I learned real quick, you know, yeah. and mm-hmm. so I basically was running the pre-camp program, which is the juniors uh, in their junior year. Okay. That's who I worked with mostly. Um, How many active duty guys do y'all have <clears throat> or at the time? At the time, I was there... Like three or four? Or no, probably... Ten. Oh, okay. There's a bunch. Maybe twelve. Uh, that's full time. Full time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you went there, and that also gave. I, I want to say I don't want to speak for you, but gave you a little bit more of a stable time, like with family, as far as like yeah. work hours. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and re- it was able to my back. I didn't have to do the sit ups, which was a, another thing that caused my back to really go out. So I was able to recover over time. And get my and I felt good about that. You know, I had to, I had to to turn down being promoted because I didn't want to make the E nine, even though I was eligible. I didn't want to make E nine, and then have to go to the Sergeant Major's Academy and stay in because it would put me in a bad position. Mm-hmm. So I just turned down selection for E nine. When you went to the college, is that where you became a Master Sergeant? Yeah. Then basically, I was a Master Sergeant because I don't have troops. I have cadets. No. I didn't have troops. Oh, I got you. I got you. So you had to live both worlds. Um, you know, that's interesting. I, um, the E9, cause Sergeant Major, you had to go to a whole nother school for that. And, and that, was there an E9 slot at North Georgia? There is. Mm-hmm. Oh, there is? Oh, yeah. okay. But it would have been more years. More years and things like that. So when did you officially retire from the military? Uh, 2001. So 2001. So you were from the college for? Four years. Four years. Okay. And you started in 81, so you did 20 years in the right. military. And that, to me, was that was that emotional for you to, to hang it up? Or was it like the back was hurting? You have Jamie was born at this point? No, I don't, yeah, Jamie was born. So you have two um, kids? Two kids. Uh, Robbie was homeschooling. You know, mm-hmm. I say Robbie, not me, because she was the one who did all the work. Um, and so I just had to figure it out. You know, but I was ready to retire at that point. I loved the job I had at the college. I loved the cadets. They were the cadets are great. They, uh, you know, it was a big learning curve for me. But they, what I enjoyed w- most was just watching them develop over the four years, mm-hmm. from a freshman to a senior, and to become a lieutenant. You know, that was huge, um, and I really did enjoy that. It was very rewarding to do that. But it was time for me to move on. I knew it was thirty eight, and I needed to figure something out. You know, so it was very, it was very uh, fearful. I was very fearful of retiring because I didn't know what I was going to do to make money. <laughs> yeah, because especially when Robbie's homeschooling. Yeah, and no college degree. No college degree. No only... skill set. Well, you have skill sets, but just not, not a really piece of paper. F- not really for the civilian world. Anyway. Not for the civilian <laughs> world. Okay, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. <laughs> you can't go. Hey, I, I know. How to shoot guns and jump out of airplanes? What job does that get me? Um, so you're in this critical point once again. You know, you're talking about the when you're 22 and now you're 38. So it's another critical point of I know I feel called to retire, to hang up this military, uh, which is hard because it's part of your identity. It's part of who you are. It's where you've been. Okay, you've made that commitment that you have to go do something else. Did you invite God into that equation? Like, what did you do? Like, hey, God, uh, 
what is yeah, toss a that, career yeah, coin? Yeah. No, no. It was um it was very prayerful moment. I mean, I didn't feel like there was any question about if I needed to retire. I, I was I was ready to retire. I felt comfortable mm-hmm. with that. The question was, what do you do? Yeah. That was the big question. So um, I felt pretty good about it because I, I had a job to go into right away. Um, me and a couple other guys, we, we helped start up a wilderness program for troubled kids. Um, and I felt like, oh, that's going to be a great job. I'm going to love that. And I did like being in the woods because I like being in the woods. <clears throat> but I didn't like chasing bad kids through the woods. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So then I had to figure, okay, this is not going to work out. I need to do something else. So then about a, after a year of doing that, you know, going back to the college, there's an active duty component and a retired component. Mm-hmm. So the retired component colonel, um, who was the commandant of cadets, called me and said, hey, I'm expanding my staff. I have a position opening operations officer. Wanna know if you were interested in it. And I was like, Oh yes, I am. <laughs> so Yes. I was fortunate enough to get that. So then I became a state employee. Which could um, you part so of that I'm, retirement program. So I'm back to I'm back to the college wearing a uniform, but I'm a state employee, you know. I'm I'm retired. Yeah. And so I'm working with the same people I've been worked I've worked with. Do they know, still so call you like like master sergeant or sergeant? Are they allowed yeah, to call you that yeah, in yeah. a retired role? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So that was an easy transition for me, and I enjoyed that a lot because I'm back with the cadets. I'm back where I'm comfortable. Was it weird being the retired no part versus really. the active part? No. Okay. No, I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't feel weird at all. I enjoyed doing what I was doing, but <clears throat> you know, it's a state job. Mm-hmm. It didn't pay very well, um, and so. At True. that point, with my military retirement and my state pay, I was still making less money than I was when I was full-time active duty. And so I was like, gosh, I just, wow. I, just I gotta do better than this, you know? I didn't know, at, that's when I got really stumped, you know? So at that point, uh, I was meeting with a small group uh, with, with a couple men. And I mean, we I agonized over for months what I was gonna do, you know, and just, Talk to these guys. They prayed with me. We, we and how young are the kids right now? Uh, Caleb would have been six. Is he ninety-five? Six. Yeah. Okay. Maybe seven. Six. So Jamie would have been about four. Okay. And Robbie's still homeschooling. So you. Right. So yeah, I, I asked that because you got young kids. You know, you're you're trying to provide for the family. And you are providing as a dad. They probably love you as a dad, but you're coming from the financial standpoint of, I'm actually making less money than I was, I, and that's that's stressful. It is very stressful. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Yeah. And so you're agonizing with a small group. What happens? Well, they they helped me. I mean, we prayed about it for months. I know, easily mm-hmm. months. The decision of what to do, um, and so the decision was that I would. I was going to leave the college and become a real estate appraiser because you could do that. And then I was going to get my real estate license and do real estate because I just, I'm not really sure how that, I know how the appraiser came a part of the equation because yeah. uh, the, the active duty colonel that was there, that's what he did. And he came in one time and started talking about how you enjoyed it and this, then I thought, well, I can do that, you know? So, yeah. so I can, so 
I got my appraiser license. Uh, I got my real estate license. That's what Caleb got first too. This is appraiser license, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. And then um, I, I made the jump, you know. And uh, it, that was a very, very guide moment, a very scary moment for me. I distinctly remember having a conversation with with Robbie in the kitchen and said, you know, you need to get your teacher certificate current and make sure it's good because if this doesn't work out, you're going to have to go to work. Yeah. And she just looked at me and she said, well, I'm not worried about it. And I was like, well, I am. <laughs> uh, she's like, you'll do great. And I was now, like, oh, now yeah. was this Chesity or is this like, did no, you have to work no. somewhere else? So I, I just got my... I, I was appraising first. Oh, okay. And then um, after I started appraising, the real estate business just kicked off. Um, I was working for a company called Prudential at that time. And then I, I went to go work for uh, Remax. Remax, okay. Yeah. And uh, Was there some things that you were learning? Like, was it easy when thing, you first the whole, started? The whole thing is learning curve, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I was wondering if it was like, all right, I kind of get this a little bit, or was it like I'm struggling right now? I don't know what. Well, God was good. Means. God was very good because uh, I hit the ground. You know, the biggest part was you know we didn't have a whole lot of savings, we didn't have hardly anything, and it was like now you're working off commission. You're not working off of, you know, like a military paycheck, the first and the fifteenth. Yeah, so that's a whole new world. You know, so very very scary for me because mm-hmm. um, from the time I was 18 till now. First and the fifteenth, Tony got a paycheck, you know, so it was different. So, but God was good. The business, my business was was good, and I was I got really busy really fast. So I stopped doing the appraising, and focused more on the real estate. And I just stayed in the real estate. Uh, that was that would have been two thousand one. That would have been two thousand three. Okay. Um, when I started doing that. And then did that for a few years and thought, you know, I, I think I can open my own company. I think I can do this. Mm. And so then I got my broker's license. Can I, can I ask you this question just real quick? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back. You retired from the active duty in 2001, right? Mm-hmm. What Do you remember what time it was? August. August. So you retired a month before 9-11 happened? I retired uh, 11 days before 9-11, yeah. August 31st was my last day. Wow, because I was just thinking to myself, like, <clears throat> I didn't know if that was a weird, like, if you retired after 9-11, if you felt like, well, maybe do I need to go back into it? Yeah, yeah. That was a weird feeling when that happened, for sure. Because, cause, you know, because you, you've been through two combat missions with the Rangers, and now we're, like, the whole country just had this huge thing happen to them. I didn't know yeah. if that was a... Any questions about that? You're like, ah, that's the that's the next generation. Yeah, it was a weird feeling for sure. I got you. Sorry, I didn't mean to go no, back good. in time, you're but good. I just thought about that. So, 2003, you got uh, you're starting uh, the real estate and start selling houses more so than the appraising. Yeah, um, and then you do that for how long? I just continue to do it, and then uh, I believe <clears throat> I went on my own. I opened up Chestity Property Management first. Um, which um, I think was 2007. Um, was that another God moment of like, yeah, I, I have the, because if people don't understand the real estate world, right, I understand you have to have a broker. It's probably a little safer to have someone else be the broker. You work for the company. Okay, I'm, you know, I still get commission, but I have the safety. They have leads, they can give it to me. But to go out on your own, 
is a whole nother like it was yeah that was a big step you know um but i felt like i could do it and i started it with uh, the property management side you know managing real properties and selling um and then a year later i opened up uh i formed chesty real estate you know and then i made a phone call to my partner now and asked him if, if he wanted to come on board you know as a as a partner um and he eventually he did and then we just have been doing it ever since 2008 that partner who's also a big part of my life love you uh so that and they've been there since 2008 yeah right yeah uh and y'all have expanded even the company has expanded right because didn't y'all buy like a you know, you start off just working in a small little building, didn't you? I mean, no, no, we've been in the same place. We rented it, but then oh, we ended okay. up buying it. Yeah. Um, and our agents obviously grew. We mm-hmm. we grew agents. Uh, we're very comfortable where we are now. We you know we have a really good office. Was there some? Was there any military things that you learned <clears throat> that you do with leading? Like, do you lead the other real estate people, or do they just kind of self manage? Yeah. No, they're independent contractors. They kind of do their own thing. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, it's everybody brings something different to the table, you know, from that aspect of leadership. Mm-hmm. And what I would say I carried over uh, to my clients that I sell stuff to or to my owners is, you know, the, the, the military thing is, you know, you take care of your soldiers, they'll take care of you. And right. it's the same aspect. You take care of your people, they'll take care of you, you know. Whether you're going to get anything out of it or not, it doesn't matter. Right. You, know, you might be showing houses to somebody. Or you might be helping somebody do something and knowing you're not going to get anything out of it, but it's the right thing to do. So you, you take care of people. They'll take care of you. That's uh, It's very similar to um, your partner would always tell me that that was his, is his ministry field, you know, because there's a lot of times where, you know, there's first-time homeowners, or it's complicated. Right. They, they don't understand this, and I'm not here to take advantage and get rich quick. I'm here to walk life with them, help them out, answer questions. You know, and then obviously there's some customers who are just jerks. You know, that probably drive y'all crazy. We can do another hour of real estate crazy stories that you probably went through, but for the most part, you know, you're walking with these people, and and you're you're pouring into them. And, and it makes them feel comfortable, makes them feel safe. And, you know, it could, there is reputations out there of like car salesmen and, and real estate people trying to get rich quick. And so that's not what we're about here. We're about walking with our people um, because we value people over a, a profit. Um, and so I think that has been a successful, um, I don't know, mission or, or life goal that y'all have. Because I see that the way that you interact with people all the time. Um, and so are you, what, one day are you going to have to retire from the real estate or can you do that forever? Uh, you, you can do it for a long time, you know, <laughs> yeah. how busy you want to be, you know? Yeah. Uh, because now you kind of expand into the cow business. I wouldn't say I'm in the cow business. But He's I a cattle rancher people. I do have cows. You do you have cows? Was that more of a, is that more of a hobby type yes. thing? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, CJ Farms. Follow them on Instagram. They're fantastic. Just CJ Farm. I feel like I'll tag it in the post because uh, they're fantastic. How many cows you got? Uh, I, I keep the same amount of mama cows, you know, and then, um, which is, I have 10 
mama cows and they generally will always have a calf on the ground and then I have a bull, you know, so mm -hmm. if you count them all, there's about 21. Sometimes there might be, a, it depends on the situation. You might have a few more, you might have a few less. Do you remember when I saved your farm? When you saved my farm? You see, this is the type of thing. When the gate was open? When the gate was <laughs> open, Tony Nelly sometimes doesn't remember how valuable I am to CJ Farms. Uh, I was going to uh, your neighbor's house, and I noticed the gate was open. And I was like, hmm, that's weird, you know, because there's cows in the field. <laughs> but I was like, well, maybe he's he's there. And so like, I pull up, and then and they had like a, for those who don't know, they're kind of upper on the hill. And I was letting the dogs out, and I look, I'm like, there's no trucks over there. They're like, there's nobody over there. And the gate's open. The cows were not, they were like at the, they weren't about to get out. But I, I remember calling you, you know, like, hey, what's up, Ben? I was like, is this gate supposed to be open? And you're like, what gate? I'm like, to your farm, and so you're like, I'll be there in five minutes. <laughs> like you really came over and was like, I don't know why my gate was open. Yeah, uh, who knows? Uh, but now you have like a a high tech, you know, it's like a automatic gate opener. Yeah, <laughs> computer operated um, cyborg thing that opens it. So, well, Tony, what? First of all, thank you for being here today. Um, and this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode. I'm going to probably break it up to different probably, parts. Probably could cut out most of it. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not cutting out anything. I, this is fantastic. Uh, but we like to end each episode. And if I do break this into part one, part two, maybe even part three, I don't know. Uh, this is only going to be in the last part. But we like to do called Nuggets of Wisdom. You know, we like to end each episode with just something that people can take away to, to think about, to, to chew on, to ponder. Um, that maybe is something that you've a life lesson that you've uh, experienced, and I feel like we've learned a lot of nuggets of wisdom. But what's something that you kind of, uh, I don't know, like to use as a nugget of wisdom to keep you moving forward? Oh man, I don't know. I'm not that smart. Because um, I know the one that you said to me um, that I'm going to probably name the first episode is um, learning uh, how to bend and not break. Because I think there's a lot of times in our life where, the, I don't know that's a military term, but I'm using it more of a civilian way, is there are moments in our life where we are bending. But when we have faith in God and we, and we, we lean into who God is and who God's called us to be as a follower, as a person who experiences grace and, and love and, and joy from God, is let's not break. You know, like there's, we're going to go through a lot, but when we're God, we, we're not going to break. Because uh, we can't break. Because God can't break. Um, or if we do break, we seek God for that healing and that, that restoration. Um, but I like that. I like how we learn more about who we are and that we can bend, but let's not break. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I like that. I don't know. I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm smart enough to have words of wisdom. You know, I think... Oh, uh, gosh. <clears throat> I think of a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, I think, um, um, you know, we, I have a different, I'm, I'm pretty laid back mm -hmm. for the most part. I get, I stay pretty laid back. Um, and I try not to get upset over things that I'm more of a problem solver. Yeah. So I'm not going to overreact to a situation if there's a situation that comes up I'm, i immediately go into how to fix the problem 
not really why it happened, whose fault it is, but let's fix the problem. Um, and I think sometimes we're really quick to to blame, you know, and life is short. We all say that all the time, but it's so true. Life is short, and, is, and now I'm about to be 60 next week. I can it get shorter all the time. Happy you know? birthday. But uh, I think sometimes we just, we have to not take things so seriously and, and enjoy more of the little things, you know, and I, I don't think there's any wisdom to that. It's nothing earth-shattering. People have been saying that for years, but I think maybe you don't really see that till you're a little older. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can pick it up sooner, you probably will have a more enjoyable life. <laughs> yeah. Tony, let me ask you this. I know I always, I always say let me ask you this, but I'm hosting a podcast. And it's my job to ask questions, but it's a word that, or a little phrase that I always say. So let me ask you this. You talked about, you know, because we do a lot of spiritual stuff on this podcast, and the Great White Buffalo, in case you didn't know, like in Native American culture, it represents a spirituality. Um, not a lot of people know that. And so that's kind of why we kind of went with that theme. And so with the military being kind of your your career, you're really good into it, but there are stuff that you are passionate about outside of the military and things that help you connect with with people outside of the what y'all call the civilian world, right? I think it's the military term, the civilian world. So what were some of the things that, I know we talked about earlier on in the podcast, you talked about summer camps, which I thought was cool because Caleb and I uh, worked at Canuga, shout out to Canuga fam, What's up? And so we had that summer camp. You worked at summer camp and talked about, uh, was it deaf and hearing impaired? I think that's the correct terminology. Was Where was that <laughs> in? Like where, where did you work outside of like the military? Well, I, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in a church that had a big deaf crowd mm-hmm. and my age kids. So it was kind of a natural process to get involved. Um and then I just, for whatever reason, I had a heart for it. I had a soft spot for it. Um, and then I would volunteer at the elementary school to the special ed classes. I'd go in and kind of sit with a child of profound problems, basically. And, and I just enjoyed doing that. Um, so I kind of always, for whatever reason, if I was going to head any direction educational-wise, that's kind of an area I thought I might would be as a special ed teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was really enjoying that. Um, but I, I worked the, it was called camp anchor actually out of North Carolina. Um, and I would just, I would spend the summers down there and that was, that was a joy. Um, I just enjoyed doing it. I didn't mind giving up my summers doing it. You know, there was no pay or anything. You just were down there and I really had a passion for the kids. And the, the problem with, with that was, you know, there's, there's not a deaf community in the army. You know, right. so you lose a skill set, mm-hmm. you lose, you lose the fluent, the fluency of it. So it, I didn't have an opportunity very much to use that in the military because it's just, it's just not around, uh, until I was in Alaska. And now when I was in Alaska, the, the, the time was easier to get. I had more free time and availability to work. You're right. Cause you're not in special operations either at that point. So I was able to locate a local community and uh, took some classes while I was up there uh, in sign language because I just wanted to see where I was, you know. Well, so I well, took some advanced classes in sign yeah. language and then worked with the local deaf community. Well, well, let me ask you this, though. So you're saying from when the summer camps that you worked at was before military. 
Yes. And high, so high school. in high school uh, at Camp Anchor. And then almost, this is, oh my God, more, 20 years, right? Or no, this is more 10 years, 13, 14 years later that you're in Alaska from that point. Did you just like, have you, but that say consistent, your passion about it? Or did you kind of like, you're in Alaska and you're, you know, I could kind of dabble back into it. You're like, oh, this is really cool. I like, I really want to get back into this. Well, I didn't, Does that I make ne- sense? Like, I never had an opportunity. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a realist and practical. And so I'm not going to be able to do anything with, with, with deaf children while I'm in the Rangers. That's just not going to, yeah. that's not an option. So there's no sense in fretting over it. Um, and I didn't think I would have another opportunity. Mm-hmm. But when I was in Alaska, I was a, I was availed the opportunity to go to school and I just and at that point I was more like, "Where's your skill?" I mean, we don't even know what's going on the last ten <laughs> years, you know. So yeah. I got back into the classroom and did some things in the classroom to to sharpen up my skills, and I was working with the local community, which I really enjoyed uh, a lot. Um, I I think I guess what I was trying to get at was just to me it's it, it's powerful is the word I'm thinking or or moving that you had such a passion that went through such a long season of 12 years of not being super active to still being a passion. Like most times people kind of go through phases of like, oh, that was cool. I liked it for summer. But you're like, no, 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 it, it lasted a long time. And I think that's because at some point it hit a, a deep heartstring. And I think this yeah, is a beautiful it definitely moment. Yeah, definitely a soft spot. You know, <clears throat> we didn't talk about this, but <clears throat> I'm not your average ranger. And when I say that, I'm not. No, saying, you're not. You're the best. I'm not saying that boastfully. I'm saying that I don't fit the profile of, of most. There's some things that I do fit the profile of, but there's a lot of things that I don't. Like when I joined the Rangers, I, I didn't drink, I mm-hmm. didn't smoke, I wasn't a troublemaker, um, didn't have any tattoos, you know. And a lot of guys in the Ranger unit were one of at least one of those. Dip, smoke. If not all three, yeah. <laughs> Drank a lot. Triple threat over here. You know, uh, all that. And I wasn't, you know. I was. I would go to church still. Hardly anybody was going to church from the Ranger unit, you know. Um, was that instilled from your childhood? Like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I distinctly remember um, during training one time when I was pretty young into the, the unit and I was – we were doing some repelling exercises and I got into the top of this high place and it was going over the edge and the instructor stopped me. I would never forget it. And he stopped me and he says, Ranger Nunley, why would anybody that worked with deaf children and doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, want to be a ranger? <laughs> and I was, I don't even know what I told him. I just know I was afraid to death. Uh, but what I do remember later was, Somebody had noticed. Somebody had noticed that, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely was standing out for some reason or another, you know. Um, so it's not that, I, that in that aspect, I'm not normal, you know. Yeah. I'm not your typical. Well, and you didn't give into peer pressure either, because I bet there was moments on the weekend where everybody wants to go to the bar, and you may go for like just to socialize, but not to drink and not to do those things, and. Sometimes if you, if you don't play it right, it can make you an outcast of like, oh, he's not one of us. He doesn't want to hang out with us. But it's cool that they noticed that and commended you of like, all right, all right, you know, you're going to do you. 
Uh, I think that speaks a lot to your character. But I am I probably am normal as far as my size. You know, your average, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, I've said this many times, but a lot of your rangers aren't tall people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's not the guys that you think. They're not the, the guys that you think they would be. You know, sometimes it's the most skinny guy in the group that has the biggest heart, mm-hmm. you know, but carries the same amount of weight, does the same amount of work as everybody else, but it's got the big heart. I got you. And that's awesome. So you, when you were in Alaska, you got you got plugged in and, and worked with a group. What, what city were you all close to in Alaska? We were in Anchorage. In Anchorage? Okay, because I just... When you think Alaska, I'm like, are they in the middle of like a frozen tundra? But no, you are like no, in your city. And that, you know, that 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 passion was very was very important to me because when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do when I retired, going back to that conversation, mm-hmm. one of my main options that I was giving myself was to become an interpreter, a sign language interpreter. Oh, okay. Um, so when I got to the college where I had some more time. I enrolled in some more classes, and I basically, at this point, had I gotten to the point to where I took all the classes I could take. There was no more level of classes to take. The next step would have been to enter into the interpreting program, um, which is a big step. And wow. in order to do that, I basically probably would have had to have left my job because you really have to immerse yourself into the community for a while to get the skills you need to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of sat on that fence for a while. I actually helped a local interpreter do a couple of graduations at the college for a, a deaf student. Um, I worked in middle school a few times when the interpreter was out. You know, so I was getting my feet wet, but I right. really wasn't doing it. And I just didn't feel like I could because it was just too big of a risk to leave employment for a while. Because we didn't have it, we wouldn't we didn't have the savings to, to support that. Right, but it's still, I think it's still awesome that you, um, you just have such a heart for that that has lasted from your teenage years till now. You know, you just said you're about to turn sixty, and it's still a passion of yours that it still hits that heart. Uh, that did your mom was from France, right? She's right. like one thousand, like one hundred percent French. Yeah, she was. She, Did she teach you French? No, that was sad that she didn't. Okay, so I was say because you could be trilingual, you know, American Sign Language, yeah. English, she, and French. Unfortunately, she came to the states uh, not speaking a word of English uh, with my dad. Military, he was in the military in France, and um, she she was here during the part of the United States when it was not con- it was not accepted really to speak other languages other than English. Mm-hmm. So she really, she really felt the pressure to learn English. And so... And kind of suppress her. Yeah, French so she did not speak French. Uh, after she learned English, um, I wish she had taught us French. Yeah. I wish she would have spoken yeah. at the house. That would have been awesome. a great benefit. Uh, did she even, like, even to herself, she didn't, you never caught her speaking French, maybe? What, to her family on the phone? On the phone, oh, okay. uh, To my dad sometimes around Christmas, you know, if they're trying to keep a secret or something. Could he might, speak French? He could. He, okay. he, you know, even though he was not educated, he could speak Spanish and French. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was trilingual. Yeah, he he, he picked that up pretty good because he was stationed in Panama for many years. Okay. So he picked up there, and then he was stationed in France. He picked up French. Bonjour. Yeah, mom was definitely 100%. She actually lived during the occupation of the Germans. Um, Wait, what? 
we don't have enough time to talk about this today, but I definitely need you back on the podcast to talk about <laughs> I'm a big World War II buff. And she lived through the occupation. Yeah, I mean, she was born in 32. So she was... She uh, was 10 years old. 10 years old when 42, but she was... Um, I think she would have been eight or nine when Germans occupied France, you know, before the Americans came. Yeah, because they, I think they came in 39, because they 40. She lived in the basement. of They occupied their upstairs, and they, yeah. were, they were basically contained in the basement to live. Wow. Have y'all have you been back to France with her at all? Actually, we went a few years ago. Uh, first time that she and I had gone together with with my wife Robbie, we went over there and it was a good trip. Was that emotional at all? No, or just just fun. It was just okay. fun. Yeah. Uh, did, did she talk a lot about that time? She did not, uh, which is interesting. Now that she's passed, I <clears throat> I have a million more questions for her. You know. Uh, oh, I didn't realize she passed away. I apologize. Yes, she passed away last September. Um, at her funeral, talking to a lot of people at her church, apparently she did talk a lot about it to them did because she? they had mentioned it. You know, and I don't know if she felt like she didn't want to tell us about it or what. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I just know very. I just know a little bit of what she's told us. I, um, you know, if I you know could... she's not a fan of Russia. <laughs> yeah, well, because yeah. well, Russia wasn't. Innocent in the World War Two either. Um, we have a lady at our church. She, her name is Miss Lois, and she's like ninety one now, ninety two, and she was a little girl um, during World War Two, and but here in Georgia, in South Georgia, and apparently I, 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 haven't, I did not know this, but they brought some prisoners over to America, and they worked in her, like her parents' farm field, like German like prisoners and then they eventually like they worked the farms and then they you know went back to germany at some point but she talked about that and i thought that was super interesting um wow because i i feel like to have your home invaded and, and your country invaded and you know there was a lot of casualties in the in the taking of paris and france and i don't know if she was in paris or one of the off cities but she's on the coast she's on the coast okay so she was probably one of the later taking over of France because they came in from that side. But it's still, I mean, it's traumatic, you know. Uh, your home, you know, people, yeah. soldiers live in. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Um, and I'm sorry I didn't realize she passed away. So, um, well, I appreciate you, you sharing that. And, yep. Um, are, are, you, are, you, are you doing anything with, with sign language right now? I'm not. Not yet. <laughs> and that's actually what he's exclusive. He's opening up his own... Nunley School for the Deaf Impaired. Uh, think about it. You know what? Think about it, T-Dub. Can you do... I'm going to put you on the spot. And if you can't, that's fine. Can you do Great White Buffalo? Like, like is that, I don't know if that's even a thing. Um, um, I would probably embarrass myself, but I could get it across, but I won't do it. Okay, okay. <laughs> we won't do it. We won't do it. We won't do it. Um, and exclusive. Maybe later we can get one. A lot. Uh, I always call it... Don't make it a level 10 when it's really not. I work with some people, I'm not trying to call anybody out, but I've, I have worked with some people uh, who, when a situation comes, it's a level 10 freak out. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, let's take a deep breath. It's not a level 10. But, but probably the, no one's I, bleeding. I would say my best advice to people is to marry up. Marry up. Yeah. 
Yeah, I married I married way up. So shout out to Arnon. Uh well Tony, thank you for being here. First sergeant, master sergeant. I don't know which one. I used to retire as a master sergeant, right? Which one do I call you? Tony. Tony, I was gonna, I was gonna salute you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being here today on the Great Life Buffalo podcast. Yeah, this was enjoyable, uh, and and you get to see the World Series uh, Braves. We get to watch that. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to experience that. I just was looking at my championship ring. You're a big Braves fan, but uh, I appreciate you being here. You're the best. You've been a blessing to my life, and uh, Caleb and and Jamie and Robbie, the whole Nunley family has been a blessing. So I appreciate you being here today. Thanks, um, I want to say, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. We, we appreciate y'all liking the videos, watching the videos. If you're an Apple or Spotify listener or Amazon, we're on Amazon Music. I always forget that, but we're on Amazon Music for those who listen there. We really appreciate y'all listening supporting the podcast. This is a, just a passion project of ours, and so I appreciate y'all doing that and being part of this. But until next time, peace.